Welcome back to Drink Full and Descend, a fanatical analysis of Twin Peaks. Hey, Mike, how are you doing today? Hey, what's up, Cameron? How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, pretty good myself. Looking forward to digging into part 13 of The Return. Yeah, so this is episode 13 of Twin Peaks The Return. It mm-hmm. is um, also our 11th podcast. Yay. So uh, this whoopee. is getting really exciting. Yeah, whoopee <laughs> for sure. Um, so this is uh, interesting to note that... Um, the last week has been the net filled with everybody going over episode 12, mm-hmm. the introduction of Audrey Horn, Yeah, discussing the scene with Charlie and Audrey, trying to piece that together. So there's all kinds of theories online mm-hmm. as to what that was all about. And much complaining. And a lot of complaining. <laughs> and I feel like uh, of all the complaining that we might have seen on the net, um, episode 13 kind of shuts a lot of that complaining up, doesn't it? Don't you think? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I at least enjoyed this episode a whole lot. In particular, one of the, the, maybe the first real scene that we get, right? We open on the exterior of Lucky Seven. We see the uh, lawman statue or whatever and mm-hmm. the cherry pie thing, whatever yeah, we're going to call that. statue with whipped cream with cherries on it or whatever yeah, we're whatever, seeing there. whatever that is. But the next thing I just thought was awesome. Yeah. This is really great. We cut to the interior of the office. Um, we catch this fast music that seems very sped up and kind of crazy. And weirdly, I mean, like arrhythmic or polyrhythmic or something, mm-hmm. right? Again, like, it feels like one of these moments where you're scrubbing through a timeline and everything is like sped up and fast, so it sounds surreal. Mm-hmm. It um, almost seemed to me like a, a kind of uh, atonal polka or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. It was uh, great. And amidst this sound, we get a conga line. Of yeah. the Mitchum brothers and Dougie. Together and Candy with, and Mandy and Sandy. Yeah. They're all just like sort of parading in and they're just happy as fuck. Loved it. You've never seen anybody so happy. No. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> like I want to be in that group. Yeah. Um, and then it was also really amusing to me how uh, Tony sees them mm-hmm. and he's kind of aghast. He starts hiding behind his desk right. and all of that. Yeah. He doesn't quite know what to make of it except for the person that he's supposed to kill is now in league with the people he was trying to set up to kill him. Yeah, well, it didn't work, it right? It didn't work. He was he adamant, was, yeah. you have an uh, enemy in Dougie Jones, yeah, right? And that now we're seeing the Mitchums. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit, right? Uh, so I love how he hides behind the desk, and then ultimately how he kind of, like, sneaks his arm up onto the desk to grab the phone. The right. whole thing is just really, really Yeah, it's kind of comic, but at the same time, the plot thickens, and mm. we're getting to see this whole commitment to the bad guys break down. Uh, things are getting closer to Duncan Todd mm-hmm. because he, in this scene, he does call Duncan Todd, and right. Duncan Todd points out how unfortunate it is that, you know, what he's witnessing. Yeah, right. And then he says, "You have one day." He's like, "You know what you have to do, right? Mm-hmm. You have one day." Uh, so recalling that Duncan Todd had told uh, Tony earlier that if uh, the plan with the Mitchums failed, then Tony had to kill Dougie. Right. Right. Tony says, "Oh, but before you said two days, so whatever's going on there." Yeah, he's kind of pleading with Duncan, but he does seem a little bit childish when he's on the phone with him. <laughs> he's hiding behind the desk, so yeah. that's great. So, but this whole scene is the Mitchums uh, and Dougie coming into Bushnell to basically yeah. like say, hey, yes, we are all friends. We accepted uh, the pie well, I love how and Bushnell, the check. Bushnell claps as they enter As they enter, office. he's clapping, yeah. Because yeah. there's this whole Vegas showmanship thing going on here, right? Yeah. They walk so. in, they're in kind of like a chorus line or a conga line, rather. Mm. Um, they get into the office, and I think right away Rodney says something along the lines of like, my favorite new insurance agency. Yeah, and, indeed, the way he'd flex it. <laughs> and these tough guys, a few episodes back, they were the tough Vegas gangster guys. Uh-huh. 
And now we've seen them kind of split into very jolly, almost clown-like figures. Oh, yeah. And they come bearing gifts. And Candy is super excited about these gifts as she presents them. I love this, too. I love this, too. I love Candy. Yeah, Candy is just so Um, great. And, you know, her huge smile and mm -hmm. how excited she is. You can tell she's like on the verge of not being able to be any more happy. Yeah, she possibly. starts like kind of giggling uncontrollably at the end, right? So she gives them uh, some cigars. Yeah, there's three, three wrapped up boxes. One is Monte Cristo number two cigars. And uh, then some monogrammed diamond cufflinks. So oh, whenever, very when nice. Very they beautiful. found the time Bushnell somewhere says. in there to get these monogrammed. Right. I was realizing, right? Because apparently this is the day after when we saw them at the restaurant. Correct. Right? That's implied. Bushnell says something like, you look like you had a heck of a night or something like that yeah dougie maybe you should call your wife yeah and he, he with a question he says call wife and His they wife, all laugh and they all just laugh <laughs> yeah. like he's like whatever yeah um i did note there that this does seem to indicate that the brief little scene we got last week of uh sunny jim and dougie quote unquote playing catch was out of sequence i guess right i don't know where that fits in but mm-hmm. it does seem like here we're picking up right after the uh the morning or day after the restaurant scene from uh, part 11, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Dougie uh, playing a catch with his son doesn't, with Sonny Jim, I should say, mm-hmm. um, doesn't really have a stamp on it to put that in anywhere necessarily. No, um, which is fine. And the other gifts are, uh, of course, like you said, the monogram diamond cufflinks. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is the keys to a brand new car. Yeah, that's when Candy gets really Candy excited. Candy gets really excited yeah, at like, that. But it is the classic, like, a brand new car. You know, like it's the like the right showmanship, or Price is like Right, that. game yeah. show. Uh, or just like winning big in Vegas. This right. is their version of winning big in Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. He's already Mr. Jackpots, but through his luck and his demeanor, he is, and not saying anything ever, he has somehow stumbled across being the biggest winner in Vegas, uh-huh. making amends between the Mitchums and Bushnell um, to the point where they bring them these gifts. And I love how it's pulled off with the conga line and this very Vegasy showmanship kind of thing happening. Right, and then they just conquer their way on out, right? So there's no immediate expectation that Dougie's going to like start the work day. Yeah, correct. So They're coming in odd. to say, hey, here's your new car and some nice mm-hmm. stuff. Um, it is pointed out that it's a matched set, the cars, because Dougie has one also. Yeah. Um, and then they conga on out with Anthony kind of still cowering and watching them from his office. Yeah. So I guess Dougie's getting the day off. And then we do see when Anthony is on the phone with Duncan Todd that Duncan Todd does have kind of this uh, expression on his face that he's got some fear. Yeah. Because of Mr. C, right? Well, it would be understandable that he'd be a little worried. Yeah. Right? I mean, he knows already that um, Lorraine's been killed for failing to uh, off Dougie and Mm -hmm. all of that, right? So. yeah, Duncan Todd might be in a little bit of trouble. He's only got a few more chances left to take care of business before mm. this all catches up directly to him. Or I wonder if he has any, right? I was already mm-hmm. kind of thinking a few episodes ago when Mr. C mentions this double header in Vegas. Yeah, right? for I was already Hutch thinking, and Chantel to go to Vegas. Yeah, I was already thinking one of those people might be Duncan Todd. Yeah, Duncan right? Todd like, and Dougie maybe we would assume. Yeah, I mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So great scene, great way to start, uh, you know, especially after – all the talk online last week about what's going on here and trying to piece all this together, this first scene kind of told me, you know, this really is about the the tactile nature of watching this show. Yeah. I mean, I was very excited, and this made me giddy to see this. This is, like, one of the most fun things I've ever seen on television, actually. Right, and I think it is largely more about that kind of, I don't know what, mood work or something like that, or you're setting a scene and... Uh, the way these things are playing. And, you know, of course we want answers about things, but um, also I think it's just a lot of fun to have a scene like this 
and very Twin Peaks, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you go back to the original show, there was all of this like quirky stuff that happened that, you know, maybe didn't really move the um, central plot forward, but was part of enjoying the show. Right. And also just these fun moments with these characters that do also have kind of like a dark or very serious backstory. Mm -hmm. Think of Dougie Milford with Lana or something. Right. Although we didn't know that Dougie was, uh, you know, a man in black when we were watching all of that in the original run. Yeah. That that, uh, cracked me up reading The Secret History. Mm hmm. Okay, so we cut from this uh, first scene to uh, exterior shot at Dougie's house. Um, yeah, and you you more or less predicted this, as I recall. Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of people did, I think, when yeah. we see that the Mitchums are sitting around talking about, what, your son doesn't have a gym set? Yeah, so they got Sonny Jim a gym set. Yeah, and yeah. it's delivered, and, you know, Janie E. sees it's delivering. Uh, she also mm-hmm. sees the car with a bow on it. This is the right. car, too, and they say, yep, yep, the Mitchums. Dougie hasn't been home yet, apparently, but the car's there. And, yeah. You know, so Janie's pretty happy, you know. Yeah, you know. get this little uh, moment where this soft music pick, picks up. I don't know if this is Janie E's theme or something, mm-hmm. but soft music, and then you see her kind of smiling. Um, this begins what is her fawning over Dougie this whole episode, and mm-hmm. you can kind of see in her face kind of the love that she has for Dougie, right? Yeah. That she's really just in uh, an adoration kind of thing right now for the sequence of events that Dougie has now changed the family with, you know? Yeah, and then I really love this next scene. I think it is with Sonny Jim playing on the gym set. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, right? uh, The gym set is, you know, of course it's Vegas, so has flashing neon lights all over it. There's some kind of spotlight that seems to be going back and forth. Yeah, like a prison yard spotlight (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah. And And there's this big arch that's lit up that's reminding me of like a marquee sign on the strip or something. Yeah, it doesn't really seem to be part of the jungle gym or whatever, right? Yeah. uh, And then the music, right, is uh, Tchaikovsky. Yeah, so uh, I, I caught this to be uh, a loop scene. I feel like mm-hmm. we see Sonny Jim going through this gym set a couple times in exactly the same way, and yeah, I, I am thinking that this is a loop. Um, it's also playing Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, this ballet, mm-hmm. yep. which, as we know, is about a princess being turned, her form is changed into a swan by a sorcerer. Right. So that seems kind of along the lines of kind of what we're witnessing with the sorcerers of the Black Lodge kind of thing. Definitely thematically in line, mm-hmm. I think, with what's going on. And But, I mean, in terms of this scene itself, it just makes the whole thing play so um, strangely. But in yeah, way, again, it's just so just like weird. Quirky like, and fun. Just uh-huh. this kid playing on this neon gym set while Tchaikovsky's playing. I, I loved it. Yeah, and yeah. with the parents looking on, and mm. she's, you know, Janie E says, Oh, Sonny Jim's in seventh heaven. Dougie yeah. repeats this, only slightly different. Right, he just says seven heaven. Seven heaven. Yeah. I thought was noteworthy. I'm not sure exactly what to do with it, but mm-hmm. you're starting to get a little variance in how he's repeating people. Yeah. Right exactly. after that, too. He sort of silently mouths so much. Yeah. So right. Jenny says, I love you so much, Dougie. And he does match what she says, but he says it silently, just lipping so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we have previously seen him respond to her saying, love you. Mm-hmm. You know, so he has returned that sentiment at one point. But just how weird is it to see Sonny Jim in this? First of all, it seems late at night. Um, yeah. Is he really having fun? I don't, you know, he's I going through so. the motions, and we yeah. think, oh, he's in seventh heaven. Well, I thought Janie it e. was interesting to me that you pointed out that this is a, a loop, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so if you're having that kind of looping effect here, we see that again um, later. Yeah, we'll there's a few times this episode where um, I think this is a repeating pattern is the looping that's happening. Right. So, yeah, what, what's going on exactly if you're getting that kind of direct looping a repetition also talking about last week when we had that repetition of the um 
Jacoby Dr. Amp show. Yeah. I don't know if you saw someone went and they took that footage and the footage from uh, part five, I think. Mm-hmm. And they did this thing where they played them in sync. And it is actually an exact repetition of a lot of those lines. Like right. they were using the same footage and then there were these little differences. But um, I definitely have an eye out for when we're getting that kind of literal repetition. Exactly. Right? Sometimes it plays a little bit more intentionally than others. Mm-hmm. And this episode, it happens a couple of times. So we're in the comfort of our, let's say, quote-unquote, hero's home where they're safe. Um, yeah. And we cut from that to western Montana, which is the first time we see Montana, right? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure um, that this is the farm yeah. that Ray referenced back Yeah, Mr. C says, yeah, I bet you would want to go mm-hmm. to the farm. Yeah, Ray wanted to go to the farm. Recall also when he was on the phone with uh, Philip that uh, he said that Mr. C knew where he was going mm-hmm. i think that implies that he was going to the farm right um so i think this is the farm even though it really doesn't bear much resemblance to a farm uh i think that's where he is here i think that's right yeah, yeah so we see him pull into this big garage it's of course this gigantic truck that he gets from Chantel and hutch right there's also another like armored truck inside the, mm-hmm. this big garage armored i say but it looks like it's like tricked out um, almost a battle vehicle kind of feel. Yeah, and I loved how the the whole gang is sort of um, watching him on this huge monitor. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, they have this video system that <laughs> links their, their garage. But, you know, so the leader of this gang, right, seems to be this guy Renzo. Mm-hmm. And Ray seems to have run off to his home gang, quote-unquote, sort of thing, right? Right, or I got the feeling that, you know, from what Ray said back in Part 8, I think it was, that the farm is this kind of place you can go to uh, also to um, elude the law to some degree. Right. Because if you recall that um, that conversation in the car, Ray said something like, they're not just going to let us go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to go somewhere, quote unquote, safe. Right. right? Um, yeah. So he's given Mr. C the door code, I think he says. Yeah, and he says, but that's the only code I gave him, and now mm-hmm. he's trapped in there, and he's mine, he says. But Renzo has another plan. Yeah, Renzo's a bit of a dummy. Yeah, he says, uh, well, yeah, okay, you can have him, but let's have some fun with him yeah. first. But this is kind of a mistake, basically, because he was trapped. They could, they were, maybe he had the upper hand to try to get to Mr. C. Right, but no, we're going to bring him up, and yeah. we're going we're gonna to Because have we have to prove him. something. So there's something about the pride and the ego happening here where Renzo has to show off in front of his guys. Or oh, whatever. yeah, and there's such, like, hubris or cockiness yeah. um, on the part of Renzo and uh, and Muddy mm-hmm. uh, and others, right? They, I, don't th- I don't think any of the other people are named. Right. Yeah. So they, they, they say, chuckle a lot. They say, let him upstairs. So Muddy goes to announce to him, step into the elevator. They yeah. bring him, Mr. C, upstairs to where they are. And they have a little confrontation right away where Mr. C basically says, uh, I'm here for Ray. And Ray says, you know, you fuck, I'm here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So there's a challenge going on. And I, I get the feeling that Ray, although he's not running the show here, kind mm-hmm. of feels like he has the upper hand and he's not as worried as he should be. Um, yeah, perhaps. Um, he, Ray has his gun out, but Renzo makes him put it away. But, I mean, of course, there's a whole group of them, right? right. And a number of them do have guns. Some of them even have uh, rather large, scary-looking guns. So yeah. I think the idea that they have the upper hand is not wholly ridiculous, mm-hmm. um, even if there's some naivete about uh, who they're dealing with. Yeah, well, Ray um, even does say, oh, hey, that's I know that guy. I killed that guy. <laughs> you didn't said. kill him too good. Yeah. <laughs> and the response is, you didn't kill him too good. He's yeah. here. He's with us. Yeah. So basically, the thing that Renzo wants is to 
have a traditional arm wrestling <laughs> oh my contest. God. I, I <laughs> love this. I mean, there, of course, there's just, I don't know, immediately thinking about over the top. And, yeah, of and course. Yeah. Like that. But there's something kind of ridiculous about arm wrestling. And, uh, but that's also winked at or explicitly kind of mocked. Um, but I love, first of all, you get uh, the character Muddy explaining how this works. Yeah, right. he's done this a ton of times. Muddy is the <laughs> default um, uh, judge of it, I guess you'd yeah, say. Yeah, he's like, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. You arm wrestle the boss, Renzo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, if you lose, he's your boss. Right? Yeah, you got to do what he says or yeah. you're dead. Yeah, many have tried over 14 years and all have failed. Yeah, yeah this is like super dramatic about the whole thing. And, of course, what's really great about this is Mr. C's response saying, wait a minute, is this a kindergarten? <laughs> yeah. Or right? is this nursery, nursery? school? And uh, yeah. and so he says, okay, so what happens if I win? Right. And they all laugh. Like they all, the guys are all laughing at him throughout. Yeah, it's like, total impossibility. Just chance, considering it right? is funny. Muddy says, you know, looking at you, I think you just walk away, right? Presuming that um, he would not submit to Renzo and thus mm-hmm. end up dead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then they say, well, if you do win, you get to be the boss, right? Yeah. He says, I don't want to be the boss. I'm here to yeah. get Ray. He says yeah. he wants Ray. So he changes the deal and he says, mm-hmm. okay, if I win, you keep your gang, but I get him. Right. Just makes a deal that if he wins, he gets Ray. And apparently they are going to abide by these rules, although Renzo does punch him in the back of the head as yeah, they walk this is the from the room. nursery school yeah. teacher. That, that also might have been a mistake on uh, Renzo's part, right? Yeah. I wonder if mm-hmm. he hadn't punched him in the back of the head. It might have been, he might still be running the gang there, yeah, you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. all Mr. C really wanted was Ray. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then, I, but I love the arm wrestling match. It's really great. So first of all, Mr. C is kind of messing with him. Um, I love the fact that they build this up as something you've seen countless time in movies, times in yeah. movies. But it plays totally different than what we're expecting to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it should be pointed out that with the quote unquote the arm being its own character, an important part of the mythology of Twin Peaks, to have arm wrestling. Hmm. I don't know if that's yeah. even worth mentioning, but I figured I'd throw it in there. Yeah, it's interesting. Sure. This is two arms showing off, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Renzo slams his elbow down with a thud because he's got this huge arm, yeah. right? And everybody's like, ooh, dang, you yeah. hear that? And then Mr. C is like, just calmly slides his arm up, right? Right. And then Muddy, you know, goes through the rules or whatever and says, you know, are you ready, boss? And he says, yeah. And he says, are you ready to Mr. C? And More as laughing. he says, yes. Yeah. The, the guys in the background, you hear someone say, he's not ready. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> Skinny old dirty guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the uh, the display of power here, I don't know what I was expecting exactly. Like part of me was expecting Mr. C to just win right away. But the way that it played out instead was such a more dramatic display of his power over the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Just the you realize he's letting Renzo put his arm down. Exactly. Right. The other, the other position, thing is he's not right. breaking a sweat. He's no. not even really blinking. Even. Not exerting himself at all. He's he's not even phased one bit. Yeah. He goes back and forth, and then uh, in startling moment, he's like, return to starting positions, boom. Yeah, starting position is more comfortable. Yeah. When you had my arm down like this, yeah. that so hurt. Cool. Yeah. But when it was down like this, that really hurt. Yeah. And then he demonstrates like, see, see? when I put your arm right other, here, that uh, hurts. Starting position is yeah. more comfortable. Yeah. yeah. So he's just messing with him. He can win this at any moment. Mm-hmm. He's The show of strength is really great. And I love how Ray is the first one, if not the only one, who really starts getting keyed into what's happening. Oh, yeah. Right? Renzo has to stop him. Ray's, Ray's like, about to interrupt. Oh, fuck. It, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Uh, yeah. 
And but uh, Renzo screams at him, says, "Don't you yeah, move, don't Ray? Yeah, don't you dare! Right? Yeah. We're going to follow these rules of arm wrestling club." Yeah, <laughs> arm wrestling club. Again, a motif we've seen in tons of movies. Another one that it reminded me of was in David Cronenberg's *The Fly*, the remake of *The Fly*. Oh yeah, yeah. With Jeff Goldblum mm. when he's already got this power of the fly. Okay. And yeah. they have that show-off moment. He actually rips Isn't the that guy's when he breaks arm. Breaks the guy's arm out. And yeah, he it's breaks really it gross. and rips through the flesh, and it's really gross. Yeah. That's interesting. You mentioned that. I didn't really think of it. Although I was, as I was watching the scene, half expecting that to happen. Happened. That me too. I was. Yeah. Um, but but um, no. it's very interesting how I feel like Mark, uh, Mark Frost and David Lynch are examining like, okay, what can we do? What has been done? Mm-hmm. And see what's the most effective thing. And yeah. they land always on this great surprise of something. They build our expectations up. And then not only do they interrupt us and do something different than what we're expecting, but it's something usually from my perspective, far greater than I would have expected. Yeah. And then, Right, so finally Mr. C is like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and win. And then mm-hmm. he almost immediately stands up and punches Renzo in the nose and kills him. Yeah, punches through his nose, crushes his skull, hits his brain, you, you get the feeling, and kills him. This yeah. also reminds me a little bit of the woodsman crushing somebody's skull because you mm-hmm. see you know, the indentation on the skull. It's broken and it's very bloody, very graphic. Yeah, I mean, I read it as that kind of move where you are like pushing the nose up into the brain or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. But... This is what I was thinking of earlier, right? Like, maybe if Renzo hadn't punched him in the back of the head, right? maybe Mr. C wouldn't have felt the need to kill him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But, mm-hmm. but so, uh, and then almost right away, Muddy says, well, okay, he's yours, boss. So yeah. Muddy is with it. Yep, and, like, you won the arm wrestling <laughs> yep, match. We just said, you're our boss. And <laughs> yeah. you, it makes you wonder, like, this is the first uh, changing of the guards that they've had there, right? Yeah, and, and then... We were talking about this um, weird kind of first request he makes, where he says, "Cell phones, give me cell phones." Yeah, he says, "I'm going to need your, I'm going to need, I need cell phones Just or something." Give, or me, give some me some cell phones, phones yeah. right? Not give me all of your cell phones, uh-huh. right? So it's not, I don't want you all to have cell phones. Right. It's just, I would like. A plurality of cell phones. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so why? What's yeah. going on? I, well, I, my I, first thought was thinking about Mr. C's crazy tech that he always has. Yeah. You know, and maybe he's using other people's cell phones to build custom stuff. Well, or we saw in that previous scene with uh, Chantel and Hutch that he used the one cell phone once, and then it was like destroy this now. Right. So maybe he's got something going on where he only uses a cell phone. Yeah, I like once. that. It's part of his process to remain untraceable. He's always mm-hmm. using different ones. There's also the question of him texting back and forth to Diane. Maybe and if that's happening. If that's what he's and so and doing, but that yeah. might make some sense that you know that there's always a different cell phone that it's coming right. from. Of course, I was thinking about that. You know, that question of. Um, who Diane is texting with. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Mr. C operates that way, I was thinking about the question of how does Diane know who's sending her the text messages? You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And furthermore, does Diane know who's sending her these texts? Right. Messages? They're really messing with um, the screens of phones, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. striking that they're showing all of these cell phones. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they don't tend to look like your cell phone screen tends to look, right? right. Like right. even when Richard gets that text message that we're presuming is from Chad, mm-hmm. it just says, done. Mm-hmm. Well, if I got a text message from you, right, it would say like, Mike Wilson mm-hmm. said blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that kind of identifying information seems to be consistently not there. 
when we see these cell phone screens. I thought that was yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think there's other examples of that, too. With mm-hmm. Basically, anytime we see a computer screen, think of Mr. C in the hotel room with that weird briefcase yeah. and on the phone with, quote-unquote, Philip Jeffries. Right. Um, the computer screen he's looking at there with the fake kind of Google Earth or Google Maps. Right, yeah. Um, there's always this kind of, like, not-so-real aspect to that when it comes to those computer screens and, and readouts, I think. Yeah, even though we've seen what I think is, like, Google Maps with uh, Frank Truman and we mm-hmm. saw him Skyping and so on, there's still seems to be some difference between that and what it is like in reality, mm-hmm. which I've noticed and has to be intentional. Right? Interesting. Because yeah, the a little easier more... thing to do would just be to let it be like it is in the real world. Right. right? But yeah, but it, there's a lot of shots like that where the cell phone screens or the computers are bespoke. And mm-hmm. it seems like, why are you, does this have to do with supporting a dream logic or something? Or, yeah, just them hiding the date from us. That's certainly something they seem to be intentionally doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, I also, you know, I love this uh, scene, too, as we move forward with uh, Mr. C and Ray. Ray is squealing. Mm -hmm. He knows, oh, gosh, so now that Renzo's out, Mr. C owns me. Can we talk about this? And he shoots him in the leg. Now we can talk. As he's he's saying that, he starts to run. He gets shot in the leg. And I thought it was interesting. He basically asks uh, everyone to leave. He says, we need some privacy. Mm -hmm. And everyone leaves, it would seem, except for this uh, accountant-looking guy with the glasses. Yeah, earlier on in the scene, he does stand out. Right. There's one guy in the room who's got glasses and a tie Mm -hmm. and everybody else just looks like a hardcore biker gang yeah so and so he comes up from the stairwell and appears in front of him says do you need any money right this is after he shot ray in the leg yeah and ray is shot Um, on the ground and like looks up at the guy to see you know who oh what really you're gonna see yeah try to fund him guys it's like news checking do you need any money and mr c says no right um which i thought was interesting in terms of his um cash flow but you wanted to make another point here right well yeah earlier we've seen with ray where mr c corrects him and says now i don't need anything from you he points Mm. out even if there's one thing you should know about me i don't need anything so when the guy says to him do you need money yeah you wonder is he is he answering i don't need anything or is he saying like actually i've got 16 million dollars in the back of this giant truck or whatever yeah i mean i kind of read it more in terms of something like the latter like mm-hmm. money is not an issue mm-hmm. right that he doesn't even want money um and it also is as bad guys go mm-hmm. when you find out that the real main bad guy is not interested in money yeah it's even scarier right so, well, that, that well, was okay. my primary read i mean i think the point you make is interesting and worth noting yeah but at the same time if it were just that it would almost feel a little like pedantic yeah. on his part it's like you said need yeah nope <laughs> if right. you'd said want maybe yeah like i don't i don't <laughs> think he's quite that uh but pedantic harking about. back to that previous scene in the yeah, night which a, ray was present a callback. for yeah 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 um, mm-hmm. And then what unfolds here is um, Ray basically being murdered by Mr. C, possibly having his soul captured and or being trapped in the lodge himself. What do you think about this whole thing? Because yeah, Mr. Get... C, um, first of all, Ray announces that he's got this ring. Right. I thought we get a good amount of information in this scene mm-hmm. overall, both in terms of their conversation and in terms of what happens with right. the ring. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um Let's take a step back and, and go through it maybe a little bit more slowly, because first of all, Mr. C asks, you know, who hired you to kill me? Right. Mm-hmm. He answers Philip Jeffries, although he says that's at least what his name is. I never met him. Right. I spoke with him on the phone. So Jeffries or not Jeffries. Uh, yeah, someone it's almost who's... like every time Jeffries is mentioned, this is pointed out. 
Yeah. Like, eh, it might not be actually the Philip Jeffries you know, mm-hmm. to the audience, to me, meaning David Bowie. Right. So, just to point that out, yeah, it's so always it's, like, hey, it might be somebody just using that name. Yeah, either Jeffries or someone who's using the name Philip Jeffries. Mm-hmm. He also says, Ray says, that um, this quote-unquote Jeffries set up the whole thing with Warden Murphy and the prison. And the prison. Mm-hmm. Which, okay, but there is a little weirdness there, too, right? We talked about this before, like... Um, in terms of whether Mr. C intended to go to prison and so on. Mm-hmm. And, okay. It's, if it's a setup, that's a little odd. But mm-hmm. um, foreseeing how that would play out um, is implied. Well, I took this as possibly having to do with Mr. Strawberry, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah. what is the other name that is mentioned to the warden in that scene? Joe McCluskey. Joe McCluskey. Yeah. Right. So I, I thought if there was a setup that Philip Jeffries did... With the warden and the whole prison thing, it might have started with Mr. Strawberry and Joe McCluskey or something. Oh, yeah, maybe. And then maybe we only caught the aftermath of that. But I think all of that's relevant because you mentioned the ring, but Ray says that the ring was given to him by someone who at least was dressed as a prison guard. Yeah, he didn't recognize him before. He said he was dressed as a prison guard. Um, And so there was some question about the warden and his guards who were also mm -hmm. knowing the warden was kind of breaking the law and supporting him. Yeah, so someone who was a guard or who was dressed as a guard gave the ring to Ray, who had also been told that after he killed Mr. C, he was supposed to put the ring on Mr. C's finger. Yeah, and when was he told that? And I think he says that Philip Jeffrey, this Philip Jeffries, told him that. Yeah, so I I'm think he was sure told when, that though. by a different person than the person that gave was him the ring. Was he told that before he got the ring? Maybe. And was it um, Philip Jeffries dressed as a guard? Yeah, the timing of this is just mm-hmm. um, a little odd. Regardless, so Mr. now C we see Mr. C makes Ray the put ring, the ring on right? himself, and he says mm-hmm. specifically, left hand, ring finger, mm-hmm. which we've seen Agent Cole has pointed out is the spirit mound finger. Right, and uh, some of the stuff in the Secret History of Twin Peaks uh, indicates that some of the people who had the ring wore it in different places, and mm-hmm. that there's some special significance perhaps to wearing it on the left ring finger. Yeah. Right. Um, with this ring, I the wed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay. And yeah, so he makes Ray, uh, Ray put the ring on. And then when he kills him, that's what you're mentioning before, mm-hmm. we see, first of all, the ring like fall into the lodge, sort mm-hmm. of ting on the floor. Right. Right. Um, so this is bringing up a lot of questions as to what does the ring mean in this whole mythos? Mm-hmm. So I was kind of thinking like, oh, wow, okay, does that mean that that's another way to enter the lodge is if you die while you're wearing the ring? Right, because then we see Ray's dead mm-hmm. body in the lodge, so that was one thought that maybe if you're killed while wearing the ring on that finger, that makes your spirit trapped in the lodge, Yeah, would however, explain Laura. That least. would explain Laura as well. But the other thing is that, um, you know, Ray is told, kill Mr. C and then put the ring on his finger. So not that he didn't have to die while wearing it, but that right after the death, the ring had to go on his finger. But Ray actually had a chance to do that, except for he was scared away by the the woodsman, basically, right? Yeah, basically. uh, I did take the implication that he was supposed to put the ring on Mr. C's finger in order to force him back into the lodge. And if he had gotten it from Mm -hmm. a guard, that Mm -hmm. was before that scene. So it stands to reason that Ray had that ring in his pocket during Mm -hmm. that and was very close to sending Mr. C back to the lodge. However, was scared away by witnessing the woodsman, which he had never seen anything like. Yeah, which is... um... 
fairly rational. Mm -hmm. Those woodsmen were pretty fucking scary. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, so it seems to me that that's how that works. I mean, a couple of questions that came up in my mind in relation to that. um, Would this mean that Teresa Banks should be in the lodge? We haven't seen her there. Well, yeah, but we haven't Um, seen her die with the ring on, right? Yeah, but she did have the ring. We know that from Firewalk With Me. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course... But still, also, right, the fact that we haven't seen her in the lodge does not mean she's not there. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It wouldn't explain why Leland would be in the lodge. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe there's something alternate there about having been possessed by Bob making you go in there. Or that Um, possibly having the ring is um, a shortcut to the lodge mm -hmm. instead of going to, like, one of the vortex portals that Cole almost got sucked into or something. Right. That that might be... A vortex, a, t- a tiny emblem vortex, like an enchanted ring yeah, okay. that represents the vortex itself. I was thinking about this before where the ring itself is kind of like a doorway that part of your body goes through. Mm-hmm. And it's also a symbol of a bond, right? And l- w- mentioning with this ring, I thee wed. Yeah. You know. So it so. binds you to the lodge in some way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know that, that explains everything like the Leland question I was raising. So I think there might be multiple logics here. But we're definitely getting, if you think about it, a good deal of information about what the ring does just from this quick little scene, mm-hmm. I thought. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, um, this all wraps up with the ring being returned to its spot on the table in the lodge, mm-hmm. um, which I believe is by Philip Gerard. Yeah, we just see his hand, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that the um, jacket... That you can see exactly. on the wrist. It's like a tweed uh, jacket looks like or his whatever. jacket yeah. that he's been wearing. And we have seen him do that before. Mm-hmm. Um, this footage is reversed, so it's the the backwards version of him putting the ring back. If you correct it, it's him taking the ring. But as you pointed mm-hmm. out, of course, everything in, in the lodge there is, is in reverse. Well, almost everything. Mm-hmm. Because there are certain people, one of them, and I think maybe the only person actually, is mm-hmm. Coop. Dale Cooper, yeah. Who does not speak in reverse when he's in the lodge. Mm-hmm. He speaks completely normally. So we have yeah. yet to hash out exactly the significance of that, too. Yeah, we talked about that a bit before, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't know why. But. So, um, but in this moment before Ray dies, there's a couple other things Mr. C says, you know what I want. And there is mm-hmm. a moment, too, where he says, you know, I can make you tell me. And Ray He's acknowledges. Like, no, you like, can. Yeah, I, yeah know, I know you can, so I'll mm-hmm. just tell you. And, one of the, and he says, you want those coordinates that I got from Bill Hastings, or rather, yeah, um, his, his pretty sec- young secretary yeah, Betty. named Betty. Mm-hmm. Um, so... He does pull a little piece of paper out of his pocket that has supposedly the coordinates written on it. Yeah. Hands and but earlier in the car with him, he says, "You know what? Haven't written them down everywhere. Yeah, I memorized, memorized them. them." And here, Ray, you know, before he hands them over, he says, "Well, do you really trust that I'm going to give you the right?" Yeah, coordinates? that's a weird moment. And he says, "I know who you are." Yeah. And so it, it begs the question: Is like, oh, are you feeding him bad information? Are you trying to misdirect him? Or are you? Just stating that you're aware that you're yeah. powerless and that you wouldn't if you had some alternative way. Yeah, I don't know. There's but, that. He asks him um, about Major Briggs, whether there was any mention of Major Briggs. Right. And Ray says, no. No. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and he asks him where Philip Jeffries is. Right. And Ray says, you know, uh, basically, I don't know. He asks him again. Mm-hmm. And he knows, okay, he's serious. I better tell him. And so what he says is the last I heard... Yeah. He's at the Dutchman's, and he starts to say... That's not a real place. That's not a real place, but then gets a bullet in the head yeah. from Mr. C. And Mr. C says, I know what it is. Yeah. 
So that and, brings us to this question, who is the Dutchman if that's a person? Where is the Dutchman's if it's not a real place? Or if it is a place of some kind, or what is it? And we were talking about this a little bit. Uh, it seemed really familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also seemed uh, online, talking to a couple people, that it seemed familiar to them too. But yeah. none of us could place it. Yeah. Um, I so. was the same. Uh, for some reason, my thought went to the convenience store. Uh, there's the one character that's slapping his knee in the convenience store. Yeah. Who's actually in Dune. He's Kyle MacLachlan's father, Duke Leto Atreides, yeah. of course. But uh, <laughs> I, I can't remember this actor's name, but he's a, a great actor. And um, for some reason in my mind, I linked the Dutchman to him. I have no idea why. Which is really interesting. Figured I'd mention it. Because I think that he is credited as woodsman in Firewatch. Oh, I see. Me. Okay. Uh, those those characters. Right? So that could lead um, nowhere, but just to, Im, the way impressions work with this show, because there's a thousand yeah. different loose connections. I also, you know? um, as I was mentioning to you, I had this vague memory, like maybe there was some mention of the Dutchman on the Search for the Zone website in the guest book. Oh, interesting. But they've wiped that guest book. I see. And of course, I didn't take notes on it. You know, mm-hmm. I just presumed it's the internet. It'll continue to be there. Well, that would be interesting, um, too, to, to feed some information ahead of the episode. And then when the episode airs, you know, make sure you clear that before yeah, so that the mystery stays um, and nobody can go back and check. Yeah, you know? I don't know. But if anyone out there listening uh, has a record of that guest book, please, you know, feel free to comment. So another thing is that even though Mr. C has excused every all the other guys in the gang from this scene, right. we cut to a shot where we see that they are all watching all of this on a monitor. Yeah, and at first I just thought, well, this is really funny. You mm-hmm. know, he basically asked for privacy, but they've got the monitor and they're surveilling him. Um, as you were pointing out in that earlier prison scene, Mr. C knew when people were watching him. Yeah, he always right? looks into the camera and he's like, now he's got this eye contact here. with anybody yeah. that's watching him through a camera. Yeah, and he says, you know, now that everybody's here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, at first I thought it was just that. We sort of cut back to the action with Mr. C and Ray. But then we cut back to the guys watching. Yeah, and at first you think, okay, our new boss has just murdered someone else. Mm-hmm. But that's from the average gang member's perspective until you see... Richard walks in. Richard Horn and is I, in this group. Again, yes. I perked up in my seat um, pretty much the same way I did last week when Audrey appeared on my screen. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, it's Richard. Yeah. You know, uh, and he doesn't say anything. It's just Richard is there. Yeah, he's there. We know and, he's on the lam. Mm-hmm. We know that the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department knows that he's run over the little kid in the intersection. Right. We also know that they know that he has attempted to kill Miriam as a witness. Yeah, but even um, before we saw the that last time we saw Richard when he was assaulting Sylvia mm-hmm. there was already an indication there from him that he was going to leave town yes right, right. Like, give me some money you cunt yeah you always wanted me to leave town mm-hmm. um so okay so um, he's on the lamb he's gotten all the money he can and he's he's fled away from Twin Peaks and now he's in Montana mm-hmm. um and he's a part of this gang but he's what he's just witnessed is Mr. Yeah. C, and this brings up a, a bunch of questions, first of all, because of the possible connections. Right. Um, does he know what Dale Cooper looks like because of the lore of Laura Palmer's uh, murder in his hometown? That is a question, yeah. So that's one. Uh, another one is the connection. We still don't know who is Richard's parents. Right. Is Mr. C his daddy, as many people have said. Yeah, there's lots of theories going around about that. Uh-huh. And, of course, Audrey Horn, now that we see Audrey is on the scene, what's mm-hmm. Audrey's connection to Richard? Is she mm-hmm. really the mother of Richard Horn? Um, right. And also with Richard falling kind of down into this hole of darkness, he's now witnessed this murder. Yeah. He's now in this gang. Now, in a very formal way, Mr. C is his boss. 
Technically, yeah. Although I don't think Mr. C wants to be boss of this gang, right. as he said. I think, and I think all that's really required here um, on Richard's part is that he knew there was this place called the farm that you could go to. Right. Right. Whether he's had any previous contact with these people or not is unclear. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, he might not have. Mm-hmm. Um, all he would need to know is of the existence of this place. Right. So he might be showing up fully prepared to lose an arm wrestling match and submit. I don't know. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think it's really interesting to start seeing those um, storylines intersect. I didn't expect that at all. Uh, I wonder if there'll be any more, you know, um, interplay between those narratives. Yeah, I do forward. too. I, you know, cause we've seen Richard um, Horn in the scenes with red where it makes it seem like maybe mm-hmm. red is going to be his bad guy mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we now are seeing the same thing only with Mr. C mm-hmm. and it begs the question, you know, is this the bad guy team? You yeah, know, but Mr. I, you C, know, Red, Richard. Um, on the other hand, I almost fully expect Mr. C to just turn around and leave this place. He's right. gotten what he wanted. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I do wonder if we'll see any further interaction between him and Richard. Right. But, but he's, he's a man that knows how to use his resources, though, mm-hmm. too. I thought about Hutch and Chantel. If he really is dropping in and suddenly becoming the boss, even though he doesn't want that, mm-hmm. I, I feel like he would use those resources. Yeah, I and think, maybe he'll pack some of these guys up and take them as henchmen or something. Yeah, I think he might. And something happening uh, more with Richard here, mm-hmm. I do expect, because Richard's uh, arc is a actually a kind of major one. Yeah. I think, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, what a great scene, though. I mean, to start us off with uh, arm wrestling and then to lead us down that path, I thought that was a lot of fun. That was great. Um, That leads us to um, an interior shot, Las Vegas Police Department. Um, The Detectives Fusco. The Detectives Fusco. Um, They start with an establishing shot that shows the Vegas uh, Police Department. Then we Mm -hmm. cut in and we go to Smiley on the phone with his mom. (laughs) uh, She wants him to come over for Sunday dinner, and they have a little joke about um, whether there will be murders that weekend and— all right. Yeah, so the first thing is that he's trying to give his mom directions. He says, you pass oh, the location, right. yeah. you've got to come back, to make a do a U-turn, or go yeah. around the block. Mm-hmm. Um, another representation of a loop that I caught yeah, where I was okay. saying, oh, okay, interesting. Cool. What you're mm-hmm. talking about is somebody looping in a circle. Um, and then once he hangs up the phone, he says to his brother, you know, she wants us to come over for Sunday dinner yeah. and that no murders will happen this weekend. Yeah. Fat chance of that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they have a good laugh at that. And the other bit of humor, for me at least, was uh, in the background. You hear this woman, like, going crazy in the other room. Yeah, there's a big ruckus in the next room. Um, you, it starts by one of the cops saying, she can't piss on the floor here. She's still <laughs> pissing. Uh, you hear her respond, cocksuckers, I'll shit in your mouth. Yeah, um, suddenly cutting the nuts off, I think. Yeah, suddenly there. one of the cops like, oh, <laughs> she's got a knife now out of, you know. <laughs> um, and she says, fucking Twinkies, I'll cut your nuts off. And then you hear somebody say, tase her. Yeah. Some painful screaming happens. You assume she about, got tased. Yeah, and then I think something about wanting to report a cop. Yeah, there's another woman's voice in there that says, we want to uh, report a cop. But what I really enjoyed is how the Fusco brothers are just sitting there so impassively throughout all of this. Totally unperturbed. Yeah, He's just whatever. clearing his throat mm-hmm. another day at the office. But <laughs> yeah. This is another one of those Lynchian moments, I think, where there's something being talked about or described that is a very, very serious issue, even in our own realistic society. Right. Um, but played out in this weird, surreal, or funny way. And we don't see it. And we don't and see it at the all. the third brother comes in. He's kind of checking it out, but even he doesn't really care. Yeah, they don't Just even... It's not important enough to comment on Mild it. curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but what he's really hinting at... 
um, addressing is police brutality, right? Yeah. And uh, kind of interrogation methods. Um, mm-hmm. So whoever this person is that they've got, and of course this is Las Vegas PD, and so mm-hmm. we know in Las Vegas PD there's always a lot of drunkenness and stuff like that happening. This seems like somebody super angry, threatening, who knows where the knife comes from because you'd assume right. they're in the police station and they've already gone through this process of either booking a person yeah, you would think. or actually imprisoning them. Um, so, but just for it to play off so crazy and the screams are very guttural and sound yeah. disturbing, Yeah. but the brothers Fusco are just like, you know, not touched by any of this. Yeah. I think there's some underlying comment about their insensitivity at least. Exactly. Yeah. Which carries over into the next scene with what they m- came close to discovering. All right. So we've got the hits on Dougie's fingerprints. Yes. And they say that, um, he escaped from prison in South Dakota a couple days ago and he's a missing FBI agent. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and then, of course, um, one of the brothers says, well, that's a huge fucking mistake. <laughs> yeah, and then they just throw it away. <laughs> well, but more than just throw it away, right? He crumbles it up, right? So how about a dollar? Yeah, he bet me a dollar about whether I can, you know, make it into the wastebasket, right? A little basketball yeah. shot, right? And, of course, he, he makes it, and then they hand over a couple dollar bills. The brothers and, pay up, yeah. And that's it, right? So this thing where we thought, like, oh, maybe this is going to um, get Dougie Coop on the radar, Seems to end with this just, oh, what a fuck up. Throw it in the trash. Yeah, that's so hilarious. And so um, I think like you pointed out, we still don't know if that there might be some automatic ping that the FBI gets this uh, fingerprint scan or something. Yeah, that might lead somewhere. It might just Mm -hmm. be ending up, oh, the brothers Fusco were silly, even though we still got this. Or it might be their incompetence allowed Mr. C to keep going and killing and et cetera. Maybe, yeah. We don't, we don't quite know. Yeah. Las Vegas, you will recall, did get on Gordon and Albert's radar last week, but they weren't sure what they knew about it to ask Diane about. That was right? the intercepted text that right. Albert got, mm-hmm. yes. And I was in, in the past week, I was also thinking about the fact they do know about the um, uh, wedding ring mm-hmm. that was found in Major Briggs' stomach. Mm-hmm. That could potentially lead them to Vegas in some way. They'd have to connect some dots. Yeah, I thought that, too. If they could somehow trace that and find out who Janie E. is. Yeah, I don't imagine there are a lot of people named Janie E. Right. But who knows? We'll see. So he makes the bucket. He wins two bucks. Swish. Right? At that (laughs) moment, um, actually, Anthony comes by and is looking for a Detective Clark, right? Right. And apparently he's outside smoking. So Mm -hmm. Tony goes on outside and, you know, Detective Clark is like, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, you fuck. You're not supposed to come here. You know that. So pretty uh, quickly we're getting the um, read here that Detective Clark is a corrupt cop. Yes. Right. Who Tony has been working with. Uh, And And we know Tony's working with Duncan Todd. So that Mm -hmm. suggests that there's this kind of like small cabal of uh, corrupt people working together. Mm -hmm. They're involved in insurance scams, among probably other things. Yeah, basically. Um, And we see that um, Anthony is actually there to ask Clark a very important question. He says, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to come here, but I have something very important I have to ask you. I need need some poison. Yeah. What kind of poison would you use to kill somebody? (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to come to the police station to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then uh, he tells him, um, I don't recall the name of the poison offhand. Uh, He says, uh, aconitine. Okay. He uh, says, there's only one way to get it, and that's to pay me 5 Give me $5,000. Yeah. Why are you so against me? Yeah, why are you so against <laughs> me? He says, well, he says, because you're weak and you're a coward. Look yeah, at you. fucker. Yeah. Um, and he's, but Anthony says, I'm trying to keep this operation from falling apart. This is yeah. what clues us into, like, oh, there's a whole operation. Is right. There? Yeah. This, this whole thing involving these cops and Duncan Todd and mm-hmm. Anthony. 
And so ultimately they do arrange for Detective Clark to sell Anthony the poison later that evening. Yep, says meet me at 9.30 at the back door of Crossley's. Mm-hmm. And then uh, once Tony leaves, um, he talks to this other cop who goes unnamed. Yeah, and, who, um, who has been watching the mm-hmm. interaction. Yeah, which pr- I guess Tony must know that cop too. Otherwise he wouldn't just be talking yeah. like right in front of him. Um, and that's kind of also confirmed when this cop says like, okay, I'll call Duncan Todd. Yeah, Mr. he says, Todd. they talk about Tony, they say he's cracking, mm. the fuck wants to poison somebody. Yeah. I'll call Mr. Todd. And I'll call mm. Mr. Todd. Mm. But that's interesting conversation to overhear because, of course, we know Duncan Todd is the one trying to get Tony to get the poison and kill. Right. Um, but the cops are like, maybe not seeing this, the full story. They don't well, know right, all of what's going on. They don't on. know that Todd has told Tony to kill Dougie. So. Right. So we'll uh, assume that that'll come full circle back into the cops to Detective Clark and to Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, we cut from here to Chantel and Hutch. Yeah, in a funny scene, they're driving in the middle of the night, and she's eating some Cheetos. She's eating some Cheetos. Usual. She loves those Cheetos. Mm-hmm. I imagine I picture Chantel and Hutch shopping at a Costco, <laughs> buying Cheetos, and buying like those huge family-sized packs of Cheetos. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're always the like single-serving packs. Actually, mm-hmm. that she's a fan of. Um, so that's pretty funny. But um, so what they're talking about is Utah. So you get the sense that they're passing through Utah now. They're talking about Mormons. Mm-hmm. Um, they're discussing how Mormons are not allowed to have any liquor, no coffee, no Coke. No <laughs> yeah, Chantel mentions marriage. all of that. And then Hutch says, well, but when they do get married, they're allowed to marry like six, ten women or yeah. something like that. And then uh, she says, you know, funny there's not more of them, which is kind of hilarious. It must be because of the drinks. And it must I be love because that. of the drinks. That That's really great. Hilarious. You would think with six to ten wives, the population would go up. Yeah. But um, in Chantel's mind, being deprived of alcohol and Coca-Cola is just so severe. Yeah. And But what's really funny to me about that, Mike, is that to a certain extent, I'm with her on that. Yeah. Right? right. Like, I think that, yeah, actually, oh, man, what? Your religion says I can't drink coffee? Yeah. Man. Well, and that ties Come back. Out of here. Yeah, exactly. That ties back into the importance of coffee and, right. in the Twin Peaks mythos, you know. Um, that's yeah. That's really great, though, because... This whole time we've seen some things with Chantel and with Hutch, actually Gary Hutchins, nicknamed mm-hmm. Hutch, um, that show us that they are not nice people. They are into torture. They are um, mm-hmm. into just kind of, they're like the uh, the murderous dregs of society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they have these kind of like funny, sweet, quirky moments as if they're like a teenage couple. Well, I also like how uh, Chantel seems to be prioritizing the beverages uh, above uh, sex before marriage in importance. Right. Right. It's like, oh, you know, it's <laughs> right. really about the drinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we know she's a snacker. Um, she's into snacks. Yeah. And uh, as you pointed out, they're driving through Utah. Um, they've just killed Warden Murphy back in South Dakota. Yep. Presumably they're on the way to Las Vegas for that double header that, that got they got from Mr. C. Yeah. Ago. yeah. But it's fun to see them um, in this way. It's, it's a neat way to pinpoint where they are on their journey mm-hmm. going to Vegas. So it's like, oh, let's place them in Utah in a funny one to two minute scene. Yeah. And they're still part of this. And there's still this looming thing like, oh, what happens actually when Hutch catches up and Hutch and Chantel catch up to Dougie? You know? Yeah. What's the deal with this double if letter? Dougie is truly who they're going for, which we assume right. at this yeah. point. Indeed. Um, and speaking of Dougie, so we cut from this back to uh, Dougie's work, uh, Lucky Seven Insurance. Um, Janie E drops him off. Um, at this point, she's kind of like totally goo-goo eyes for him. She's right. really in this mode of adoration. In this nice new car. And they're in the new yeah. car that she drops him off in. Um, Anthony's kind of inside the glass doors waiting for him. Mm-hmm. And we get, what 
one of the funnier moments with Dougie where he, he just does. walks right into the glass he door. Walks, if you've ever seen anybody do this, mm-hmm. you realize how funny this is. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to not only see that they use this as like kind of a comic device, but uh, McLaughlin pulls it off perfectly. It's so <laughs> funny in this moment where he just smashes his own face right into the glass. <laughs> And um, then he's kind of reaching and feeling the glass like, oh, okay, there's uh, some material here stopping Mm -hmm. me. And I I really love that we see Anthony's um, reaction to this. His face is kind of with his eyes like, what am I witnessing here? Is Dougie, does he know anything? I, I, you know, he still doesn't really understand Dougie. Right. Yeah. Um, And and this part also actually reminded me of, uh, you know, when earlier we saw Cooper in the glass box in New York City. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting connection there. So just a little mimicking moment. Um, but somebody, some other worker comes in, opens the door for Dougie. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets in there, and then Anthony greets him. Right, and so um, Tony's plan is to uh, invite Dougie for coffee. Mm-hmm. And I love how um, his whole character, right, he has this tendency to be, like, over-friendly. Yeah. You know, thinking back to the casino scene and so on, where yeah. he's um, pretending, right, and it's so transparent that he is um, kind of, putting on uh or whatever yeah he's kind of like not strong enough to be in this whole criminal world that he's found himself in right so here's the way he's oh dougie let me buy you a coffee dougie the great dougie jones or whatever it's just (laughs) this is like it's too much yeah it's not authentic yeah um but as with the mitchums it works for sort of other reasons but you know if Mm -hmm. it were a normal interaction i think most of us would start thinking like what are you doing, Tony? You're yeah. being weird. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. But they get their two cups of coffee from this place, Simon's. Simon's with a Z, S Z. Yeah. And with the uh, O, that is a cherry pie, but that looks uh, like a sun symbol, right? With the yeah, we were talking about the it. similarity mm-hmm. between symbols. There's first of all the symbol on the ring itself, Twin Peaks, with a big circle between them. That can mm-hmm. be interpreted as um, any number of things. Um, but there's this idea of the circular symbol that has some rays or lines coming out from it. We also see this in Big Ed's gas station. Right. Um, and we definitely see it here in Simon's. Yeah. It's also represented in the double R sign. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a couple places where we see kind of like the circular logo, which is a common thing in the world of graphic sure. logos. So I'm not sure how much connection to uh, draw here. But but the fact that it is a cherry mm-hmm. pie that is um, mm-hmm. glowing with uh, yeah. rays of light yeah. coming out of it as a source uh-huh. of life and light. And they get their coffees, and then I guess Dougie sees the cherry pie. He yeah, gets he's, up. He's, he's after distracted the by the sound, I think, first. Mm-hmm. And then kind of looks over there grinding coffee or something, I think, mm-hmm. is the sound that gets his ear. But yeah. then as he goes over there, he sees a slice of cherry pie, mm-hmm. leans over into the encasement, and is kind of drooling over the slice of pie a little bit. Right. And this is one of the things I was thinking about is that it's, uh, you know, during this that Tony slips the poison into Dougie's coffee cup. Mm-hmm. But. It feels a little coincidental that he even had this opportunity, don't you think? Yeah, I think he like, was kind of waiting for this moment. Let's have some coffee. Maybe I'll get a moment to make my move. Yeah. Um, but it kind of fell into his lap a little easy. I think yeah. he's thinking to himself, like, it shouldn't be this easy to kill somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And it turns out not to be, of course. No, because uh, coming back from um, you know ordering his pie and this great little customer service interaction, um, Dougie seems to see... I guess dandruff on Tony's That's shoulders? what we see, yeah. It seems like he's got dandruff. It catches his eye. He goes over there and, like, kind of awkwardly starts rubbing so his fingers him, on yeah, his like shoulders. A finger massage. 
Yeah, kind of I, and I don't know what he's cued into here or what he thinks that he's witnessing, but it is a, again, it reminded me of like, oh, here's Dougie seeing something he's never seen before, which we have witnessed. Yeah, or I started wondering even if um, there's any possibility that um, he's getting that metaphysical kind of assistance as we've seen before, but maybe we're not seeing the, oh, the signs of it the yeah. same way, mm-hmm. right? Like, or the little lights uh, that have shown up on things. And, or just when he was on his way um, to go see the Mitchums and he stopped into that same little place and yeah. got the pie. That's where the pie came from that patched things up with the Mitchums. Yeah, so this definitely seems to some degree of a piece with that, but we don't see any indications of, you know, there's no guitar strum or little right. uh, flashing light or anything like that. And as you just indicated um, a second ago, the diner experience, he it is very much kind of reminding us of the double R. We see the waitress mm-hmm. that has kind of the diner garb on. Also, yeah. just a diner feel, and there's a sign pie. that says the famous cherry mm-hmm. pies, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so then he comes back. He sees the uh, dandruff that's on Tony's shoulders. He starts rubbing his shoulders. And then Tony pretty quickly just starts breaking down. Well, yeah. first he goes, there's your coffee, Dougie. Like, he's trying to get him to drink the poison and coffee. A, yep. In a classic reversal, Dougie repeats what he's just your said. Your coffee. He says, your, your and coffee. And then he breaks down. And he's right. like, oh, Dougie, you're right. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. sorry. <laughs> I never meant to hurt anybody, yeah. Dougie. He like, yeah. takes the coffee, runs into the bathroom. I love how when he like dumps the coffee out in the urinal, there's just some random guy there to say, like, that bad, huh? Yeah, that's a great little <laughs> joke. Yeah. He throws the mug away. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Dougie, meanwhile, has just grabbed the other cup of coffee and has started drinking it and eating his pie. Like, he's just oblivious. Yeah. And yeah. our diner waitress, Leslie, brings over the cherry pie. Mm-hmm. And Dougie, of course, starts eating the cherry pie. There's this great mm-hmm. shot that happens where Dougie's at the table. It's kind of a little bit over his shoulder. In the background behind him, we see Tony run out, yeah. and he stays full body because where he stops, you can see head to toe that he's apologizing to Dougie. Right. A um, couple things about this shot. So first of all, Dougie's kind of like, you know, uh, what would you say now? What <laughs> happened? Like, I'm uh, so sorry, Dougie. Yeah, he's not really understanding, yeah. of course, because he's, he's Dougie. He's just eating the pie. Yeah. Um, and we've seen this many times where Dougie's just really thoroughly enjoying eating something. Uh, think about the uh, Janie E scene. The with Janie the cake E scene, before, yeah, yeah, or with the Mitchums in mm-hmm. the restaurant. There's a number of scenes that we've seen that, or even chewing on the chips with uh, Sonny Jim up in up in his room, you know. Yeah. Um, where Dougie's really into, he's a foodie, Dougie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but in this shot, there's a couple other things. Is um, is the Jacques Tati thing? So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, we've mentioned Kubrick before. There's been a couple references. Um. In, in this episode, there's a couple things that I think that maybe Lynch is kind of quoting other directors. Yeah. Um, it's been said by Lynch that he has maybe five favorite films or so um, and favorite directors. Tati is one of them. Yeah. And anytime I see kind of this playful working of the characters or placement, uh, characters interacting with props or the environment they're in in a yeah. fun way, I'm totally reminded of um, Tati. In mm-hmm. this moment, we see Tony kind of in a full body uh, shot in the background where there's almost a forced perspective where it looks like Tony's a small guy yeah. standing on the table in front of Dougie. <laughs> yeah. So they're having fun with the perspective on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it should also be mentioned there's a link to Jacques Tati's playtime um, both in the conga line that happens yeah. in the beginning of this mm-hmm. episode and in the music that they're playing during that conga line. Um, in playtime, there's a very fast jazz piece that's happening that sounds very, very similar to what we're seeing and hearing in this episode, and it's also overlaid a, a conga line moment. So we can't help but think that this is kind of like a quote of, of the playtime of Tati. Yeah, I think for sure, particularly mm-hmm. because we have seen um, Lynch throughout the return kind of um, alluding to other filmmakers and other films and 
really just pulling in all of this kind of stuff and yeah all of that playfulness here and so on and i think um it would stand to mention that another one of those that he's talked about is ingmar bergman yeah and in ingmar bergman's the seventh seal you get a scene where there's several characters arm in arm walking in a line that's reminiscent of this conga line we witness okay um and also seventh seal of course is about uh, a knight trying to cheat death through a game mm-hmm. where pieces are being played. Mm-hmm. And this could remind you of the arm wrestling match we've seen, or it could remind you in general of the fudging around of uh, the pieces being these different characters and people. Right. And also Mr. C is sort of trying to cheat death. Exactly. In the sense of not going back to the lodge. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. And the symbolism of like death itself wearing black, the kind of like all black wearing hooded yeah. even though mr c has you know his mullet maybe is his black hood <laughs> or something but well, it's not a mullet come on there's uh yeah that's true he's just got long hair yeah but uh, the point being that there is some sim- symbolical um uh quoting that's yeah, happening definitely. here between definitely. bergman and tati and lynch and we know that lynch has talked about this so mm-hmm. i can't help but think that he's actively doing this throughout this episode in, i agree um, and so, in this uh, apologetic uh, Anthony standing there in tears apologizing, <laughs> Dougie kind of doesn't really know what's going on, um, but uh, he's getting the apology, and Dougie once again kind of gets his way. So, from here, we go back to Twin Peaks and the uh, Double R Diner. Right. Um, so, right? Shelly working at the Double R. Yep, and she gets a phone call from Becky. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Becky is upset. She's crying. She's saying Stephen is gone yet another night. Yeah, so apparently Stephen has been gone for two days. Right, and correct me if I'm wrong, the last time we saw him was with Gersten Hayward when Becky mm. was shooting into the, her apartment. Yeah, I was at least presuming that this is occurring after that. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe we don't know that for sure, but it would certainly make sense to me that uh, if your wife had shown up and um, shot some bullets through the door when you were cheating on her— um, Maybe you wouldn't go home. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. You, maybe you would need a second day. Yeah. Yeah. You might not go home right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but Becky, um, rather than making that connection, Becky's expressing some worry about Steven, right? right. She's worried um, that he's going through something bad. Mm-hmm. What, what if something happened to him? Yep, there's something um, affecting him. She can just feel it, she says. Yeah. So she knows there, there's... And there's this rising feeling as things are happening and breaking down that maybe she's getting some sort of, like, psychic understanding of what's going on. Yeah, and so then first Shelley says, oh, well, can we talk about this later? But then realizes, no, I should instead, you know, invite my daughter down to the double R for some cherry pie. Right, and yeah. again, cherry pie is kind of the focus mm-hmm. of... All the mode here, yeah. though. Ice yeah, cream, got the ice cream, cream with lots of whipped cream. Mm. Um, and But it is the thing that Becky is kind of like, oh, yeah, actually, you know what? Shit. Oh, that sounds so good. Ah, I, yeah, okay, I'll be there. So I was kind of <laughs> just enjoying sitting here crying and being worried, but... Mm, pie right mm. and okay, she, does, Mom. she is smiling i mean it does yeah, go she, from it complete a smile to her face, yeah. crying hysterics worried about steven mm-hmm. and then you really you know i'm thinking in my mind like forget steven you got cherry pie and <laughs> yeah. double r you know um yeah. i do wonder though what's up with steven and, and where this fits in yeah and i, I think you also I, pointed out the parallel of he's not the only character who has been missing for two days that's what said. they said about billy yeah, yeah. so what's mm-hmm. the, what happened two days ago that we lost a couple people well, and what day um, is it? Um, so, I mean, if we go to the next double R scene, mm-hmm. um, when Bobby shows up and Norma and uh, Big Ed are there. Yeah, that's the same day um, that the Briggs information is found in the chair. Yeah, Bobby says that yeah. there, right? But that's a different day than what we're looking at here. I think so. Mm-hmm. 
because if that was the same day, right? So if, if in the Bobby scene, if that's September 29th, the same day they got that information from Betty Briggs, right? That draws into question where that previous stuff fits in mm-hmm. with Bobby and Shelley and Becky and mm. Red and the gunshots and the you know, honking woman and, yeah. and all of that. Because I think earlier we had been thinking that that was on that same day, right? Mm-hmm. You think back to that episode when we see Truman and Hawk in that episode, that's on the same day, mm-hmm. right? When Jesse comes in there and says, do you want to see my new car? Right. But this other scene with Bobby, where Jesse appears saying he's just been at Big Ed's gas farm, it would seem that all of that now is not on that day. It must have been on some other day. I'm not sure what day. And we don't know before or after. It right, seems like it's too. a pretty intense scene that we would have seen some follow-up as to Bobby you know, talking about it happening mm. or taking the child to the hospital. Or... Yeah, and I'm wondering maybe if it is in the future. You know, I mean, you were suggesting, um, I think when we were talking about that episode, something along the lines of Armageddon coming to Twin Peaks. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe if it is anything along those lines, maybe it would make sense for this to be occurring like after yeah, the Jackrabbit's Palace. And, and let me just uh, restate that, that. I was basically describing, I would love to see them <laughs> yeah. take us into the void yeah. in a way that you've never seen happen on TV. Wouldn't it be great if they just demonstrated Apocalypse on Earth told through Twin Peaks? Who knows? Yeah, it I, seems I, like we could be going down that direction. Right, so I am kind of tending in the direction of thinking maybe that's later. Mm-hmm. But if that's later, and then the scene between Becky and Shelley we're just talking about is after that, then that would also be later. So I'm not sure exactly. Well, and then right before the bullets come flying in, we do see that Becky is there, and Bobby's like, okay, so what? Do you want a divorce? What do you want to do? Yeah, I think it's also possible that this scene with Becky and Shelley might be earlier before the scene where Becky shoots up Gersten's door. Hmm. That could be possible, yeah, particularly could. since yeah. Shelley's at first just kind of saying like, can, can we talk later? Mm-hmm. If it were after all of that that we saw a couple episodes ago, maybe Shelley would have taken it more seriously from the That's get-go. a good point, yeah. Yeah, but we don't really know. There's at least something they're doing playing yeah. with timelines, though. It's But, you know, a hungry customers. Yeah, there's you know. hungry faces uh, hungry <laughs> to feed, yeah. you know. Um, um, okay, so that that's that double R scene. Um, the thing that I took away from that was like, wow, what what is this mysterious force behind Cherry Pie? You know, yeah, clearly. Um, and then we jump from there back to Dougie's office. This time um, we're at Anthony's confession. So we see Anthony. He's losing it. He's confess. crying. Um, he says, I came here to confess. And Dougie says, confess. I will, Dougie. Says, yeah, yeah, Dougie, I will. I'm, I'm doing that right now. <laughs> um, and Bushnell is present and kind of yeah. gives Anthony, runs him through the ringer and kind of tells him exactly mm-hmm. what he thinks of him. The one thing that did strike me as um, new information in particular is that Bushnell says that Dougie implicated himself. Yes. I mean, of course, it's very amusing when he goes on saying, you know, Dougie already told me about all of this. Yeah, which which is Dougie turning in the forms <laughs> with the scratch. Those files that yeah. he's just scribbling on. <laughs> right. You know. Um, um, and then, of course, there's um, also that moment where he says, and the two cops that Dougie found. Through his investigative work. Yeah. And he says, right. them two. Yeah. You know, really soft, Dougie says. Yeah. And, of course, Tony Anthony thinks, says, wait, uh, what? You know about the cop? You know about them? Yeah. And, and he says they're worse than Todd. Yeah. He says they're worse He's than more Todd. scared of them. Um, mm-hmm. And Bushnell, of course, says, you know, okay, so here's the deal. I was going to run you down the river. We were going to send you out, put you in jail. Mm-hmm. But now the question is, are you going to testify against Duncan Todd? And he says he will. Now, I don't know if Tony is long for this world. Yeah. But um, he does go so far as to say, I want to change or die. Right. Like I haven't been able to sleep and um, something yeah, he about knows blood. What's Does he on say he's been puking blood? Yeah. He said he puked blood. 
So, you know, he's been really stressed out. So, you know, he says, um, you know, I think that is the, um, you know, the depth of contrition to get to this point, I guess, of saying, you know what, I'm going to try to do the right thing. I'm going to try to rectify this. Yeah, he wants to make it right. Even though I know I might die. Yeah. Right. And that's such um, a cool, I think, redemptive value for a character like that because mm-hmm. we, I mean, I wasn't expecting that. No, me um, neither. There is that one moment where he says, you know, the, the cops, the crooked cops, they're worse than Todd. Yeah. And, you know, Bushnell kind of says, he says, you know, you don't know what you're asking. And Bushnell says, well, you know, not I'm really, really asking. not asking. Yeah. yeah. So he's putting Anthony in a position like, look, you're going to come through for us. You're going to fight mm-hmm. with us. Mm-hmm. And I also remembered back to when Bushnell tells Dougie, you know what, Dougie, you go take the day off. Yeah. Meet me tomorrow and we're going to tackle this thing together. Yeah. And it was like the beginnings of Bushnell kind of putting together maybe this master plan that might have involved the Mitchums and the and certainly yeah, the pie yeah. was Dougie's idea. But I feel like Bushnell is a little bit smarter and wiser than we think. Hmm. Um, and then, um, of course, Anthony goes off again saying, Dougie saved my life. Thank you, Dougie, so much. Thank you, Dougie. Dougie does another one of these repeating with an alteration where he says, thank Dougie. Mm-hmm. Right. He doesn't say repeat. Right. Thank you, Dougie. Yeah. But he's almost like saying, yeah, right. You better thank yeah, me. Yeah. I thank Dougie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> almost like thank God. Yeah. Right? Like the way that he says it. Yeah, thank exactly. Dougie. Thank yeah. Dougie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but interesting to see. I love the where we're going with Bushnell, too. He's a tough guy. He used to be a fighter. And now we find that he's in the middle of this big fight that involves police corruption, that involves fraud yeah. and attempted murder. And yeah. we're going down this line where we're seeing him getting tougher and tougher and and also tackling bigger and bigger problems, you know? Yeah. So we go back from there to the double R again. We yep. had on a little bit of this before yeah. um, it's night here. Bobby comes in. Apparently he's looking for Shelly. He asks Norma if Shelly's there. She says that Shelly's already left, mm-hmm. but we also see big Ed, big Ed. And we've been for waiting for big Ed to appear. Awesome. We yeah. see him sitting in the booth. There's a good 30 seconds to a minute before he speaks. He's sitting in the booth with Norma, <laughs> with big Norma. Ed and Norma. Yeah. Oh my God. Are they together? Oh my God. Uh, no, we can't have any good things. In <sighs> yeah. This world. <laughs> right. Um, so when Bobby first walks in on this scene, one thing that caught my eyes, he says, um, the waitress goes to take his order. He says, I'll have the usual. Right. And you notice what this was? I didn't notice. but I did, yeah. So the waitress turns, grabs a bottle of ketchup and walks back toward the kitchen. <laughs> uh, not even a minute later, serves Bobby his usual dish, which is spaghetti with red sauce <laughs> yes, and two pieces of garlic bread. But I thought it was funny. Like, wow, well, you grabbed the ketchup. Maybe it had nothing to do yeah, with it. maybe it had nothing to do with it. But it is funny to think. Also, diner foods. But, you know, you're ordering yeah. Italian food at the diner that... Yeah, the cherry pie. It just you know, seemed a little awkward. Although I was thinking, you know, after you mentioned this, it does seem to me like the Double R is basically the only restaurant in Twin Peaks. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's his usual. That's not supposed to be your usual at a diner. Your right. Usual is supposed to be like a burger and fries yeah. or something like that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, so if Bobby's just always eating spaghetti <laughs> yeah, at the Double weird. R. It just seems weird. Yeah, seems weirdly childish <laughs> to me almost. I, I don't know, but yeah. that's amusing. Yeah. So he does, uh, as you mentioned before, he makes this comment to Big Ed saying, uh, "You know, we found some stuff my dad left today." Today, um, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Ed is showing a lot of interest in that. He's like, oh, well, what kind of stuff? As soon as Ed says what kind of stuff, I'm thinking bookhouse boys. And I'm yeah. thinking, okay, so Ed was a bookhouse boy. Mm-hmm. This kind of stuff that Briggs is involved with, I think um, Harry Truman, Dale Cooper, Big Ed, and mm-hmm. maybe James Hurley yeah. probably all got a little bit of an understanding about through the bookhouse yeah, boys. Yeah, I've really been wondering whether those bookhouse boys are going to you know, get brought into the fold more explicitly yeah and now that bobby's um, a sheriff in town i would think that bobby would be all about that and too. i'm pretty sure frank is a bookhouse boy too mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. hawk 
right? And Hawk definitely. Yeah. So, Secret history of Twin Peaks does reinforce this yeah, all too. The Bookhouse Boys are already on this case, but there's been no explicit mention, I don't think. Right, but this was definitely yeah. like, ooh, is that a Bookhouse moment? Yeah. When I see that Ed is showing an interest in that. Another thing that happens in there is that Norma says to Ed, uh, you know, I'm going to go get your dinner. Mm-hmm. And so Norma steps away for a second, and Bobby actually says to Ed, you know, hey, should I leave? You guys got yeah, something going on here sort of thing? Nothing's going on here. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. he says there's no reason to leave. Nothing's happening here. Oh, now we're getting sad. And now we're but getting sad. Not but... as sad as when this fucker Walter shows up. So fucking Walter. <laughs> I think you and I both put in our notes like, <laughs> fuck Walter, guy. we hate him. Um, this corporate so, fucking hack. So there's some corporate hack that has come in, and yeah. now I don't know if convinced or maybe Norma originally made the call. Who knows? But the double R is a franchise, we find out. Mm-hmm. So um, Big Ed and Bobby take it to another booth, and then we stay with uh, Norma and Walter. Yeah, and Walter, by the way— I actually kind of wanted to follow Big Ed and Bobby, by the way. Yeah, I was like, exactly. I want to know what they're talking exactly, about. Exactly, because they're talking about that um, book. They're right. talking about the stuff Briggs Instead, we're talking about them. the uh, Norma's double R franchises. And I thought it was interesting that Big Ed said, oh, nice to see you again, Walter. And then Walter says, uh, oh, yeah, okay, you too, man. What's his name again? Yeah, and then says to Norman, oh, yeah, what's that guy's name, and why does he, you know— yeah. It was just one of those moments that you're even and more so like, oh, Norma greets Walter. him with a kiss and it seems right. implied that there's dating or something. Yeah, so Walter's Ugh. like Norma's suitor, but at the same t- and he's, at the same time, though, he says, oh, I was excited to drive down here to share with you the reports that we yeah. just got. Business is first and foremost. Yeah, so this mm-hmm. is definitely one of these capitalists. Uh, the profit is number one above all other things, including love, which is yeah, pointed out his here. his whole demeanor is mm-hmm. along those lines as... Um, taking that kind of, you know, objectivism or something yeah. even about that kind of view, yeah. right? Like, of course, in the world, money is the most important thing and everything is through that kind of framework yeah. of, of profit. And regardless of integrity, you. everything yeah. else can be modified if the profit margin can be changed. Yeah, and so it's a look, you know, it's great. Three of your five franchises have made a profit. That's mm-hmm. great news. But one of the ones that didn't is this one. Yeah, it says, curiously, the one lagging is the original one that they're sitting at then, the actual mm-hmm. double R in Twin Peaks. Uh, Norma says, well, business always dips this, ki- this time of year. Yeah, but it's been a bit of a trend. Yeah, yeah. and Walter kind of basically says, looking into the numbers, that Norma's not charging enough for her pie. She's spending too much and not charging enough. And yeah. so for this kind of capitalist like carpetbagger to come in yeah. and say Twin Peaks pies, you need well, to exploit Yeah, it's these getting into the ingredients more. though. I thought that was the key thing. Exactly. Right? So she's so Norma brings up the pies in the other locations customers have been saying are not as good as the pies in the original one. Um she sent the exact recipes, maybe they're not following the recipes. He says yeah, they've been following the recipes, but you know, per the contract. Yeah, they can um, use their discretion to get the ingredients and right. where they get them. So from. Norma emphasizes that her ingredients are always, you know, fresh, local, organic, blah, blah, blah. Um real food. Exactly. <laughs> and I was thinking about Jacoby here, right? And Jacoby's yes. Dr. Amps ranting about the poison in the food, yes. you know. Because, okay, well, then if these other locations are cutting corners there, what are they using? Maybe it's more processed or more, Right, and more Walter admits, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you put or, love into it. But he says it in this like, way oh, that he's like, it's almost sarcastic, like, oh, this naive young lady who wants to put use love in her baking. Yeah, sorry, love's not always going to get you profit. Yeah, he says, Norma, you're a real yeah. artist, but love doesn't always turn a profit. And that, yeah. I think, is, is stating a lot, and that one sentence kind of sums mm-hmm. up a lot about the entire return itself. Even. Yeah. Um, this idea that, like, you know, basically love and integrity 
versus the idea that you can exploit something to get a resource out right. of it. Right. I mean, I was also thinking about, I don't know if this is intended as commentary at all, but I was thinking back to some of those um, hiccups in the um, negotiations with Showtime. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, Lynch and Frost want to make their art. Lynch wants to make his art, you know, and then you get right. caught up in this thing about money and profits mm-hmm. and uh, what's, what's the show going to be like, right? And maybe, you know, not to get down on Showtime here, but even carrying it forward to the audience, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of, you know, um, what the audience maybe wants, uh, what different people want, people complaining about not getting what they want, as opposed to, right, them making their work of love, if you like, right? Yeah, this is something that's always bothered me about the Hollywood system in a lot of ways is the, yeah. you know, one, one example is the target market test screenings they do. Where yeah. they will oh, go I love and the, guy, the fact the guy mentions that, like, mm-hmm. fucking focus groups and yeah, shit Yeah, focus too, groups. Right? This is what our numbers um, are showing that people say they prefer and the again, name like, to And again, that's be. objective reality. Yes. Submit to it. Exactly. Right? And the idea of putting anything above profit is just so foreign to a guy like this. Right. That he would just say, like, oh, you're being, you're being naive yeah. or whatever, right? Of course, profit drives the world. And then in the realm of film or TV, that would be to try to make the most profitable thing possible, mm-hmm. which I don't think Lynch is doing ever. Right. 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 Well, there's the whole famous story about him taking a ride in George Lucas's Ferrari or whatever <laughs> it was. But that's that's something for another well, time. Or but- the story, right, where he basically agreed to do uh, Dune mm-hmm. and then Blue Velvet was almost like his reward for having yeah. done Dune. Yeah. And then when it came down to it, as I understand it, in negotiating the budget for Blue Velvet, he ended up taking a very small budget so that he had guaranteed final cut. Because yeah. after doing Dune, he decided, I'm never going to do anything where I don't have final cut yep. ever again. And that's the integrity of the artist. You know, mm-hmm. We saw that also with Kubrick um, and Spartacus, mm-hmm. right, working with Kirk Douglas, where post-experience, he was like, you know what? I'm always going to have a final say from now on. Right. And I only bring that up because the link that Lynch yeah. claims between him and Kubrick and... Um, yeah, so it's about this integrity, but also the profit margin thing. If you're always looking at it as a cost-benefit analysis versus the integrity of a scenario, it reminds me also of the mill, the mm. natural beauty of the wood in the area, Ben right. Horn's plan to wipe out ghost wood and make the estates there or whatever. Right, to get rid of the mill and make the ghost wood estates, rather. Yeah, right. exactly. So it's a, this and exploitation. what happened to the pine weasel, by the way? I'm really upset. We're, we're probably never going to find out about the poor pine weasel. Well, we were discussing this before. I'm not sure the pine <laughs> weasel ever even existed. I mean, was this well, just... I think it did. Was it, but it, mean, it played so much as one of Ben Horn's ploys to yeah, take out Catherine. Well, no, it really might have been a ploy, but the weasel definitely existed. We saw it, right? It bit um, Dick Tremaine's nose That's and everything. Right. So we right? saw one. I don't know. It was probably on loan from the zoo. Though, well, they know? were endangered, man. Yeah. Uh, and you know, now I'm really worried that maybe those poor little weasels went extinct because it could have been. It does seem like Ben turned back towards you know his capitalist ways, and mm-hmm. more on that in a little bit. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, but in uh, further discussing the alternatives to kind of like increase the profit margin for the Double R's franchises, yeah, um, Walter is suggesting to change the name of the main location. To Norma's Double R Diner, as you mentioned, right. there's that's a focus what, group. That's what Mark attested so well. Yeah, right. And um, so Norma, he calls, is the face of the franchise. So this is again, this is this, uh, you know, yeah. makes me kind of want to puke. And, yeah, the Norma's, idea. Norma's because Norma's response is, you know, this is the Double R Diner. In it's Twin like a Peaks, Twin Peaks it's been institution. 50 years. Yeah, uh, and for us too, it is right mm-hmm. as Twin Peaks fans. Like, mm-hmm. no, you, that's sacrilege. 
to call. Mm-hmm. I mean, even that love Norma, right? Yeah. But even then, you don't change the name of the double R to Norma's double R. Yeah. And also um, the idea in the business world of taking the face of the franchise, taking your name. You are the symbol of the company now. Yeah. You're not a human Norma. You are a brand. You are a brand. Think of yourself as a brand. Yeah. And what are we going to do in terms of you know, promoting the brand that is Norma? Right. And this is the beginning of changing everything we love about the double R into mm-hmm. one of these corporate places that just stinks, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've seen that a little bit with kind of the roadhouse and how things basically yeah. in the return – are 25 years later. In the last 25 years, what? We now have Starbucks on every corner. Yeah. And, you know, all your favorite bars you used to go to have now been turned into TGI Fridays yeah, or whatever. Yeah, and the destruction potentially of that kind of distinctive small-town America and the kind of leveling of everything into, well, you got your Starbucks and your Wendy's. You the know. fucks are at it again. Yeah, man. The fucks <laughs> truly are. The fucks are at it again. <laughs> Oh, geez. So, um, but just, it's funny, too, how you can have characters like Mr. C and Red and Richard mm-hmm. Horn, and at the end of the day, we're like, we fucking hate Walter so much. <laughs> well, and, yeah, you know, oh, I really did. just a business guy. And uh, you know? we were pointing out, right, that then, you know, in spite of all of this, at the end of it, he's like, oh, so you want to get dinner later to celebrate. Yeah, which is totally secondary. To he's, celebrate. Yeah, to celebrate. Yeah, it has yeah. nothing to do with the love connection. And of course, one thing we haven't mentioned is this whole conversation is kind of Big Ed is like tuning yeah, into from the Ed. other booth. Yeah. And from what we've seen him go through with Nadine and and mm-hmm. since reading Secret History now we know the whole epic story that Hawk actually writes out in Secret History yeah, the which, ballad which of, of Norma is and Big Ed than what we got in the original show. It, it is a little bit different but it's similarly sticks, tragic. Yeah, it sticks yeah. to the main points mm-hmm. of the tragedy and how basically it's not an unrequited love, it's for some reason um, an impossible love or a love that chance never allowed to happen. The somehow. world gets in the way, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, you know, talking about those inconsistencies again, just a brief mention, I, cause I, I kind of increasingly think this is going to be important, Yeah, but I think it's interesting how, despite those narrative inconsistencies between the original show and um, the secret history, um, the core of the story seems to be intact. Yes. Right. Like right. So the story about big Ed and Norma, is the story about this love that just could not be because of the world almost. Yeah. Right? Just Yeah. Just didn't happen. Didn't but it's have it's the, the opposite the chance, of like right? love is enough, right? Love is all you need oh. or whatever. They have love and it, you know, it's not enough somehow. It's Major Briggs's biggest fear, right? That love yeah, exactly. Is not enough. That love is not enough. Ooh, this is connecting oh, a lot of really great yeah. things. Oh. Um, um and of course, um, you know that being secondary, the the Walter coming in. This also uh, reminds me too that Norma used to be with Hank. Mm-hmm. That Shelley used to be with Leo. Yep. That even now Becky is with this guy Stephen. Yep. And amongst Shelley's these ladies, dating Red apparently. Yeah, and Shelley's dating Red. Circumstantially, like this appeal of power oh, I get you. Yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Um, and here it is again represented. Before we saw Norma kind of like watching over Shelley from. The, behind the bar and saying, you know, uh, to myself, like, oh, I wish we just listened to Norma. She knows. She has the answers. But here's the scene. Actually, we see, wait, Norma's not with Ed. Um, she's kind of half signed her company away in mm-hmm. order uh, for the promise of, like, more riches or something, more success. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that also, for that same carpetbagger to be the one that's kind of sweeping her off her feet also, mm. I, it's like, again, another example of the double R ladies falling for a bad boy only this bad boy 
is just like a business schmo. Yeah. Like how, and you know, you know, in David Lynch's uh, treatment of anybody wearing a suit, basically, mm-hmm. um, in some position of authority because of their business, because of their money, um, it just seems like Walter is one of these guys. And like I said, come up against Mr. C and Red and all these other like really truly evil people. Just what I've seen of Walter, I put him up there with them too, and I don't know why, because he he hasn't demonstrated breaking the law or anything. No, he's just annoying. He's just yeah. annoying, and he's exploitative, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a little bit of a heartbreaker, and you know, you want to see, you wanted to see Big Ed coming back with Norma, um, just like with Audrey yeah, Horn. Yeah, well, they we're show... getting our characters back, but it's not the expectation. This yet. reminded me more of Shelley and Bobby because. They show Big Ed and Norma sitting there together. Right. Yeah, it's Big Ed and Norma. Yeah. And then they undermine it. Yeah. Right. Much like they established that uh, Becky is Shelly and Bobby's daughter. Yeah. And then they undermine. Exactly. That, oh, no, they're not still together. Yeah. And this is the same kind of um, methodology we've seen with bringing Coop back, with bringing Audrey back. Uh There's even bringing James back, actually, in some ways. You know, there's this thing that you would think uh, it would be this way. Mm. But turns out, no, it's it's actually a bit different, you know. Yeah. Everything is a bit bleak, too, Mm -hmm. I have to say. So we cut from this to Nadine's shop, right? Nadine's got the shop. We've seen it once already. Run silent, run drapes. Well, yeah, and I just said things were bleak, but she seems to be doing pretty well. She's doing pretty good, and yeah. She's happy. She's, she's at the computer. She's doing something at the computer. Um, Drinking her little shake thing. She's got her shake, always present. We see a car drive by uh, in an external shot, slam on its brakes, throw it in reverse, and come back. Right, and we were talking about this. My read really is that Jacoby was driving by, saw the golden shovel in the window, and decided to stop. I think so, too. Right? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think it was like, oh, let me give Nadine a late night visit. No. No, he was like, holy shit, there's my shovel. My shovel's in the window. <laughs> I got to check this out. Because although he knows Nadine, of course, yeah. um, it is indicated as they talk that he hasn't seen her in seven years, right. I think he says. Uh, we don't know how long her shop has been open or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But certainly doesn't seem like he's there to see Nadine on purpose, more like yeah, he but saw they his do shovel. not only know each other, but they know each other for both uh, because he used to treat her right. with her um, difficulties mentally. Um, mm-hmm. and Even to the point where there's this bit in The Secret History where he says something about wishing that she had uh, both of her eyes so he could uh, test out Yeah, his, we should uh, repeat this again for anybody that might have <laughs> let it slip by, is that Jacoby's glasses are not just wild psychedelia. Yeah, they're not just a style statement. They're He's got a to... method to restraining the right or left side of the brain based on kind of what outcome you want. Mm-hmm. So um, he can prohibit the right side of his brain or the left side of his brain based on the color of filter that the eye is always seeing, left or right eye. Right. And he's discovered one way to use red and blue lenses to do this. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that he has turned this into a practice. That he's actually got a patent on his invention, yeah. or a, a patent application, to be fair, I think I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in his notes in Secret History, he discusses how he really wishes that he could use this on Nadine because he thinks this would be the perfect subject to use this technology on. And you know, however, he can't because she's only got access uh, to one back workable to that, eye. Doesn't he also say something about Nadine being deep in the shit? We'll have to double um, check on that. We'll have to double check on that, but you know what? Just saying that, I think maybe you're right. Yeah, that he's had mm. uh, this kind of like um, analogy for tr- psychological trouble for many years that yeah. you're stuck in some shit. We'll double check. It's been a little bit since I read the book. So, mm-hmm. right. but um, cute little scene here. Nadine yeah. kind of 
you know, geeking out. Oh, about yeah. She says, Dr. oh, can I call can you I? Dr. Am? That's who I am. Yeah. yeah. Says, That's who I am. Yeah, she says, I love your show. You've done so much for me. And he says, well, you know what? I love your window display. Yeah. <laughs> with <laughs> the shovel in it. Yeah. With my shovel. Let's, let's walk over to it and talk a little bit more <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah. You know, and she says, actually, this is my tribute to you. And she thanks him. She says, I'm really starting to shovel myself out of the shit in this cute Nadine way. When yeah. I heard her say this line, I'm really reminded of how adorable Nadine is throughout all of Twin yeah. Peaks. You know, mm-hmm. she's one of these characters that has had trouble just coming at her left and right. And her methodology for coping with that trouble is not mainstream. And so she's an outcast in society. Yeah. But uh, the character Nadine itself uh, develops from this place of pain and coping with pain. Mm-hmm. And so all the more so, I kind of have a soft place in my heart for Nadine. And the way that she, if you, like in the original series, fell into being like a high school girl again. Mm-hmm. And then even now, she's like just so cute and adorable. And I just wish the best for her. And now that I see that she's got her own shop based on silently running drapes, yes, I'm just really happy to see that she figured this the all cotton out. Cotton balls. Yeah. Cotton balls, which actually was half Big Ed coming in with greasy hands and spilling yeah, on the drapes. I think we mentioned this before. I do wonder whether um, she's still employing the same technology, right? You would think that you yeah. need to like refine that a bit for yeah. mass production. Exactly. So I'm curious. If exactly. it's ball bearings or if it's still just cotton balls. And yeah. yeah. Well, another thing to mention right here in this moment is the connection of her and Ed. Mm-hmm. We have not really seen them together. But, you know, both of them are actually wearing wedding rings. Yeah, so they might well still be married. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, we don't know. Maybe they just both spend very late nights at their prospective stores before they go home to see each other. Yeah, I will say that um, I don't think Ed would ever leave her. Yeah, I think that's pretty solidly built up in in Secret History and in the original series that Mm -hmm. that was part of the world won't allow it, that Ed couldn't allow himself to leave Nadine in trouble and not having somebody to help her, even though... The love of his life was there saying, I love you, too. Yeah. That's just, a you know, the Shakespearean tragedy that is finest, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know. So um, Jacoby says the last time he saw Nadine was seven years ago and she was looking for a potato. Yeah, she was down on her hands and knees. And it was funny as Nadine's like, oh, well, where did you see that? Like, you know, at the grocery store. Yeah, at the, yeah. where else would you be looking for a potato down on your hands and knees? And that there was a big storm that day. Yeah, and Nadine kind of takes a minute and there's this kind of like mutual like, oh, moment. And yeah. so when he says storm, I'm thinking like, okay, so it could be that there was some rainwater all over the grocery store floor you would expect from people's shoes and stuff. She's down her hands and knees looking for a potato. There's the whole, um, this begs the question, well, how did the potato fall? What happened? Did, you, did Nadine reach and grab the bottom potato from a pile? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, which seems like it could be likely. But him mentioning a storm and her saying, oh, makes me think, oh, well, electrical Some storm. Significance of the storm. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not just rain, but electricity. Mm-hmm. And maybe. maybe that had something to do with it. But it is kind of vague. Um, but they do have this moment. The other interpretation that I had when she says, oh, is that maybe this is her realization of like, oh, Jacoby remembered me in the small detail. And he remembered exactly the day and the environment. He recorded everything about that day because he saw me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's like a little signifier that maybe Jacoby kind of likes her or something. Or she's like, Oh, you did. You noticed me. Did you? Or something, Mm. you know? Well, no, that's interesting too, because I don't think that Jacoby is romantically interested in her or anything like that, but it does seem like particularly from secret history that he is in, interested in her from like a psychiatric point of view yeah exactly and so must be really excited and thrilled to knock on this door ring the buzzer and see that it's nadine another thing um nadine says you know thanks you helped me shovel my way out of the shit and jacoby says you know that means a lot to me it does um and then he says it's us against them 
Right. And she replies by I'll saying, be a soldier or a, a shoveler. I'll be your most loyal <laughs> foot soldier or yeah. shoveler yeah. for shoveling shit. Mm-hmm. But this most loyal, this pledge of loyalty in a militaristic kind of way yeah. is interesting because, you know, uh, basically, I feel like all roads are leading to Twin Peaks and we've got one big climax. It's, this is not just one good character versus one evil character. Mm-hmm. We've got like a whole stage set with like a whole battlefield of different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, many are in, in midst of uh, some kind of internal conflict um, and many of them are in the midst of uh, external conflict that they're dealing with. But we do have our definite, like, our, our team of bad guys and our team of good guys. And right. for Jacoby and Nadine to meet in this moment and say kind of that, like, let's build up, I'll be your foot soldier, it did give me the impression, like, oh, shit, there's a big battle. Of, there's a battle brewing. And it's going to be, the yeah. battlefield is going to be Twin Peaks. I mean, of course, on the other hand, you think about Dr. Amp's show, and you're talking about Alex Jones a little bit here. And it's yeah. like the same kind of play where it's like, yeah, we're fighting the right. global corporate elitists, you know, and it's kind of the same thing every week. And then people are like, yeah, I'm with you, you know, I'm pledging loyalty, but potentially it's um, maybe it's a, like almost a, a mirror image of the big conflict you're talking about, I think, right? Yeah. Like this is just kind of, shallow and, and, and maybe ultimately substanceless mm-hmm. like that we're going to say it's us against them right like it's us with our golden shovels against those fucks, fucks. who are at it again yeah. but there nothing really is going to happen there right mm-hmm. as opposed to there will be this big showdown presumably with those other forces yeah hmm. and, and in saying that when she's saying you know i'll be your foot soldier i can't help but think of the shovel being like the gun in the first scene of an Edgar Allan Poe short story, where if it's in the Check first scene, shovel. it's got to be at the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, because of that, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's really interesting to picture what, what we can end up seeing from that. Is Jacoby going to be, like, <laughs> leading an army who, who has this weapon already built for them? Um, I don't know. So that's interesting to see. Um, but really a, a sweet scene, and um, it's, fun, it's fun to revisit a lot of the characters in their quirkiness. And yeah. to have that come back to us, there have been some episodes where we don't get that Twin Peaks quirkiness in, in a certain episode. But yeah. this one definitely had a lot of it. Of course, we go from there to what might be the darkest, most depressing scene. This really gets to me. Whenever I see Sarah Palmer, uh, it gets to me. And we've discussed this many times mm-hmm. on our podcast is the trauma that this character has seen is greater probably than any other single person in Twin Peaks. Yeah. with a, That is living. Mm-hmm. Death of her daughter. Right. The fact that her husband did it I mean, mm-hmm. just all of that mm-hmm. bear in mind here. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about is that what we see of Sarah Palmer um, just kind of sitting there drinking, smoking, watching TV. We were talking about how many people in the real world have lives that are largely like this. Right. Yeah, exactly. This is a very depressing scene for many reasons. There's the depression that I get knowing the narrative of the characters. Mm-hmm. But then just witnessing something like this, it's just a, a woman who's alone She's older. She's aging. Um, she's addicted to um, all the legal drugs, right? Mm-hmm. This is the thing: is she's uh, yeah, drinking vodka point. every yeah. day, the cigarettes, and then she's got like pill bottles yeah, from Big Pharma, yeah. you know. And so, um, and she's she's got the biggest. It's got to be the biggest TV on the market. Mm-hmm. She's got this huge flat screen TV. Every time we see her in her room watching TV, there's these subtle lights, but the glow of the light from the TV is pretty prominent. Yeah. And she's always watching something that's like a violent competition. Previously, we saw her watching lions or lionesses taking down water buffalo in a very graphic, bloody fight. Mm-hmm. Um, this time, she's watching two boxers fighting it out. Um, a couple of really interesting things about that is that it's old footage of boxers, maybe 40s, 50s or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely like um, 
I Love Lucy era yeah. kind of thing, right? If you recall on that show, they're always watching boxing. Yeah. It reminded me of that. Because I guess bo- you know, like boxing used to be a way bigger thing. Like It would be yeah. on TV all the time. Right. Um, Everybody knew who the heavyweight champion was. Right. And that's really, you know, that also that has really uh, dwindled, yep. right? Like, uh, who's the heavyweight champion of boxing right oh, now? Oh, I don't even know. I don't even know. Is it Floyd Mayweather? No, I don't. I, I've heard of Floyd yeah, Mayweather. I know he is a uh, champion and was <laughs> about all of I his got. weight class. But, but even going back to like when we were kids, everyone knew Mike Tyson. Oh, yeah. You know, this is going back even further. And yeah. um, it's a loop, right? That's the other thing that's really bugging me out about this is that there have been other sh- like uh, Sunny Jim playing on the jungle gym. I thought, hey, is this a loop? I'm pretty sure that's a loop mm, because the way he's jumping. A loop. This is definitely a loop because we keep hearing the audio mm. looping. It took me a little, you know, a couple repetitions to catch that for sure. Yeah. But it's clear you've got the kind of crackling electric noise. Yep. Right after the three tones or the, the, yeah, the, the one, sirens. It goes like, dung, dung, dung. Or bells. Um, yeah, it's the bells of the match. You know, mm-hmm. like, now it's a boxing match. He fought, you know. Yeah, and it's the same right. footage. You see the same knockout a couple of times. Gentleman but... checks to see if he's okay. And you know, the other like... thing I thought is that we have also seen um, kind of vintage boxing represented here before with Bushnell. Battling Bud. Battling Bud. Yeah. And it made me think, like, are we even seeing Battling Bud here in the footage? I could picture Lynch and Frost being like, hey, you know, maybe that's a real boxer. I don't know how to search for who's in that footage. Yeah. I... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I hope that some uh, internet sleuth tells me this yeah. week. Um, but I am curious, you know, I don't know if I brought it up on the podcast, but I think I mentioned to you, um, you know, in person that Joe McCluskey reference, we talked about the track runner. There's also a boxer named Joe McCluskey, very minor kind of boxer. Mm -hmm. So it'd be curious if somehow we're seeing footage of either that Joe McCluskey or, or battling bud. I I don't know if battling bud was a real person. I didn't look that up. I I haven't either to be honest, but uh, Um, I sure want him to be. (laughs) Yeah. If there's any kind of connection like that, uh, that would definitely be cool. But, but either way, as an ongoing motif, we've got a bout, a battle, Mm, good versus evil, a fight. And last time she was watching animals fighting, Mm -hmm. killing, tearing each other apart and the looping. um, She goes to the kitchen twice um what were you saying about yeah, um, so the first time she goes we can hear the clinkling of the bottles yeah and it's it that does remind me of the bottles clinkling when hawk is at her door yeah we heard that last uh, episode and hawk asks her if someone's there and she says no just no it's just a kitchen. thing in the kitchen uh since we're witnessing a loop mm. in this moment with a loop i can't help but think that if you're stuck in a time loop you're kind of time traveler in some sense yeah and it was suggested to me that when hawk was at her door maybe the sound in the kitchen was her in the kitchen yeah but this that's gets... just that's kind of blurring lines and that's also jumping into the parallel universe thing right and it does get very weird but maybe maybe there's so there's some time loop going on and so that you know um the doubling effect mm-hmm. could also occur, perhaps. And, and that would make sense in this universe um, of what we've been witnessing. I um, did notice that the vodka she's drinking in this scene does not appear to be well, Smirnoff I feel vodka. like there's an empty Smirnoff, and then the one that you can mm. see is totally like a generic knockoff uh, cheapy. And so it's like she's gone through her Smirnoff, and now she's into the second-rate stuff. But Maybe. when she goes into the kitchen, she comes back out with uh, a small bottle— and pours the rest of its contents into her glass with a little bit of tomato juice. Yeah. And then she pounds it. And it's like, I got the feeling, okay, that's the last of her stash. Yeah. She'll be at the grocery store tomorrow thinking about beef jerky mm-hmm. uh, to refill her vodka. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But a couple of the things that are present in this scene that is definitely worth um, noting. So 
first of all, it's the Palmer House. It's where all the torment happened. It's not exactly where Leland killed um, Laura, but it is where Leela killed Maddie. Yeah, I was going to say, it is where he killed Maddie. Um, so this is a haunted house. And mm-hmm. when I'm watching this scene, I can't help but be looking in every mirror and every window. Oh, there's a secret Bob somewhere yeah, we no- or we something. We noticed there were some bunnies by the TV set. We did see they, the bunny. She's got a collection um, of bunnies. There's multiple and, ones. Uh, the family photos. The, noticed, so there's the table right? set up with the family photos. Uh, you can see that Leland's picture is not on that table. Right. And that just psychologically, of course, makes tons of sense. You wouldn't want him staring out mm-hmm. from that table. Um, a couple of other things that um, are happening is in this idea of the looping that's going around. Um, is this actually time changing or for some reason did she actually get a ha- her hands on a loop of this boxing for some reason? Oh, yeah, yeah. The right. other I mean. thing this reminds me of is the scene where we saw um, when Dougie was with the Mitchum brothers in the restaurant and the music slows down mm-hmm. before the old woman comes over and thanks Mr. Jackpots, mm-hmm. right? So in my mind, I said, oh, there's a musical change where it just gets slower. The tempo slows. Mm -hmm. Or the music didn't change. Time itself slowed down, and thus the music changes with the time. This is also something to consider in the scene with Sarah is is time itself looping, Mm -hmm. or is she just got a loop on her TV? Yeah, but it would definitely be um, weird to be watching that looped footage over and over again. Uh, I guess I did tend towards reading it as something weird happening to time itself, or maybe I guess just as a kind of artistic way of presenting the fact that Sarah Palmer's life is caught in this little loop where her life is watching TV, drinking Bloody Marys, smoking cigarettes, and... And she's on Watching some prescription TV medication too. Drinking Bloody Marys mm-hmm. and smoking cigarettes, and the, the, that's just kind of it. That yeah. little circuit. Yeah, yeah. and it's a, just a very sad. It's a very depressing scene, and um, you know the the haunted nature of it. It's uh, mm-hmm. poor Sarah Palmer. We've said that many times in this yeah. podcast, but she's that one character, and also just Grace Sabrisky doing an amazing job. Um, and I really love her, and she's one of my favorite characters in the Twin Peaks universe. I recently watched um, Wild at Heart, yeah. And to picture the character difference between oh, yeah. who she is in Wild at Heart and and Sarah Palmer is just here. Astounding. She bears a lot more resemblance to her character in Inland Empire. Yes, right? exactly. Right. Which could be the same character, actually. You know, could be. Um, but it seems like more with it, and mm-hmm. than than we're seeing Sarah Palmer. Um, one last thing that we should probably mention that we can see in this scene, there is a bowl of yellow kernel-esque food yeah. toward the bottom of the frame. You were thinking maybe it was cream corn. I'm not How so sure How could you not think that corn. that's cream corn? I mean, corn. I understand because <laughs> I could I could think of it because I, I kind of tried to take a close look at it, and I thought it looked more like Kraft macaroni and cheese It could be mac and cheese, yeah. Um, Which would make sense because it's like the easy, oh, I don't care, um, you know, I'm nihilistic these days, just throw some milk in it and microwave it or something. Yeah. But it's also, it's untouched. It's like a full bowl of food mm-hmm. with uh, silverware stuck in it. Yeah. Um. It's not getting eaten. She's sitting there drinking and watching TV. And definitely pretty processed anyway. It's processed, right? whatever <laughs> I mean, it is, yeah. yeah. Whether or not it's cream corn, it looks to me like it's cream corn. Um, but the fact is, you know, she makes a dinner and then she sits it down and doesn't even eat it. Yep. Again, it's one of these, she's not nourishing herself. Mm-hmm. She's just falling further into this darkness. And, like, that's, it's really heavy. It's a really heavy scene. And it ends with this hard cut. 
back right, to so, Audrey. So I was saying to you, I got kind of lulled by the repetition of the boxing thing. And like, mm-hmm. a gentleman checks to see if he's okay. Bring, 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 bring. Yeah, a little mesmerizing. And yeah, just, yeah, not so much lulled maybe as mesmerized by it because I really was paying attention. Mm-hmm. But then just a really quick startling cut mm-hmm. to Audrey Horn. Yeah, and Audrey's back right where we left her off, basically. They're, her and Charlie are both in different positions, but she is saying... They, what did she say? And yeah. we assume this is the conversation with Tina that we didn't get to hear. Right. But it seems to me also like they're in a different room. It seems to me like they're in more of a living room, whereas yeah. previously they were in more like Charlie's office. Yeah, he's or not study at a desk. He's sitting on a couch. He doesn't have all the paperwork and all his business um, around him. They've at least changed positions. He's um, sitting on the couch, right? She's standing. That remains the same. Yeah, but she's, she's still, still wearing exactly the same thing. She's still mm-hmm. got her red jacket in her hand. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie says, we've been over this. And there's some key dialogue that happens right here, right? So Audrey Weird says, dialogue. I feel like I'm somewhere else. I feel like I'm someone else. I don't know who I am. Charlie you ever says, feel like that, Charlie? Yeah, you ever feel like that, Charlie? He says, no, I always feel like myself, and that may not be the best feeling. Mm-hmm. And then Audrey says, not sure who I am, but I'm not me. And Charlie responds and saying, like existentialism 101. And he, just the way he's, he's saying it yeah. so condescendingly, yeah. so slowly. Really condescending. Yeah. Yeah. This is existentialism one. You know, and she's, oh, fuck you. I'm serious. Who am I supposed to trust but myself? And I don't know who I am. So what the fuck am I supposed to do? She's and really. And then, OK, this mm-hmm. is the first thing I wanted to emphasize. Yeah. Is that he says you are supposed to go to the roadhouse to look for Billy. Yeah. See if Billy is there. And she not, says. Mm-hmm. Not you were going to do that. Not yeah. that was the plan we were just talking about, yeah. but that this is what you are supposed to do. That's what do. you're supposed That's to weird. do. That's weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which would, uh, you know, make us think that she's been assigned by another to do that. Or something. Or that there's yeah. some plan of action mm-hmm. that is not specifically hers. Yeah. Um, and then she responds saying, I guess, you know, is it far? And he says, come on. Come on, Audrey. You know where it is. Yeah. And he says, I, if I didn't know better, I'd say you were on drugs. And she freaks again. That's she says, weird, too. Just okay. where yeah. is it? You know, she goes to. Yeah, that I'm is weird, gonna too. I'm going to go with you. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, um, I'm going to take you there, he says. Stop playing games or I'll have to end your story, too. Right. It's actually a question. Are you going to stop playing games I see, or will yeah. I have to end your story, too? But yeah, that's the one. This is where we're really. What, what do we the do fuck this? line? Yeah. Be, right. Because exactly. then she says, what story is that? And we'll, we'll go on with that. But what is going on? Because this is a really weird thing to say to someone yes. in any context. Yes. Right. Like I know people even last week were starting to speculate in all sorts of various ways. Like maybe Audrey's still in a coma. Maybe this is some, some weird kind of therapy thing going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I'm definitely more leaning in the direction of being open to those types of theories, given this line yeah. in particular. Yeah, this this time around, it makes those theories seem a little bit more practical. When when somebody is saying, I'm going to end your story, too, I mean, it just sounds like, okay, so you're the author of the story, or you're at least in command of it. You're telling the story, yeah. and you have the power to end it. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't help but analyze this on many ways. Okay, so... In the world of psychiatry, would this be some role-playing or something? But at the same time, in the meta way, Mm -hmm. is this the stand-in for Lynch and Frost? Is Charlie the voice of Lynch and Frost saying, you know, um, that we could end your story? (laughs) Are you going to settle down or do you want me to write you out of this like Donna? Yeah, exactly. Settle down, Audrey. (laughs) You want to go to Mandyville? Is that what you want to do? (laughs) Right. And then she, but Audrey does say, you know, what story is that, Charlie? Is it the Mm -hmm. little girl that lives down the lane? Is it that? 
Right. So we were talking about that. Uh, I think it's pretty clearly a reference to that film. Yeah. There's right. the, the Jodie Foster film. It has mm-hmm. Martin Sheen in him. It's uh, She plays a little girl that lives down the, the lane. It's a mysterious story of a little girl that lives on her own in a big house. Yeah. The story unfolds and you find out. She's like killed her mother. Her dad has committed suicide. There's like other deaths she covers up. Right. Yep. But she's yeah. just a strange little girl that lives on her own. And it's all about the mystery of the neighborhood finding mm-hmm. out what's happening in their own small town right under their noses. Mm-hmm. And so that does play in parallel to the whole Twin Peaks mythos itself. Yeah, I don't know about to Audrey in particular. No. Well, but, so yeah, exactly. Sure. How does that yeah. how does that tie into Audrey? But even not knowing the reference to the film, mm-hmm. when Audrey says that, I my first thought was Laura Palmer is the little right. girl that lives down the lane, mm-hmm. another uh, young lady um, in proximity to Audrey in the same town, mm-hmm. and whose story has ended. Yeah, you know, or could end. You know, and I was thinking, okay, maybe he's talking about in some weird metaphoric way, maybe that's Laura Palmer. But Audrey takes this very seriously. So she changes her demeanor. She goes yeah. silent. She takes a seat. Yeah. And then um, Charlie, in this really strange line that really affected me for some reason, says, you know, you're the one who wanted to go. Now you're looking like you want to stay. Yeah. That got to me for some reason. Charlie's pulling off some yeah. kind of manipulative stuff here, right? Right. And yeah, his whole demeanor... I don't know. But then she says, uh, this is where she says, um, I want to go and I want to stay. I want to do both. Right? Yeah. And she says, which will it be, Charlie? And she says, which one would you be? Yeah. Again, which one would you be? Which one would you be? what would you do? And you had some interesting thoughts about this and like parallel universe stuff. Yeah. So I thought that one of the first things this made me think of was, okay, so you have a character that says, I want to go and I want to stay. I want to do both. Right. right? So there's a, uh, it seems to be a binary choice and you want to. Choose both. Exactly. Yeah. And so what does that mean? But in everything that we've been presented about interdimensionalism or parallel universe theory, right. the character that wants to do both is fracturing themselves into two possible um, paths yeah, right. to which so, parallel universe theory would say both of those exist, right? Yeah. And if so, if she's saying, I want to do both, that's her moment that it is fractured. And she's saying to Charlie, you know, which one will it be? Which one would you be? Kind of suggesting in my mind both of them exist. It's just a matter yeah, yeah. of which one you want to tune into. Right. That's why I think the phrasing is interesting, right? So the way you could approach this, I'm, I'm kind of repeating what you said, but I want to do it anyway. Good. That like, yeah. okay, you're living your life in every moment, potentially you're faced with some kind of choice, right? One of the ways you get to this many worlds theory or the idea of there being even potentially like infinite possible worlds yeah. is to say like, okay, look, every time there's that moment of decision, you're splitting off, yeah. right? So you did this instead of that. Now, then the potentially like spooky, weird, metaphysical, many worlds, parallel universe reading is every choice is made in some possible world. Yes. Right. Right. Now. So I think this does tie in an interesting way. And so just as you were saying, then the way she puts the question, it's not which choice should I make or, you know, what should I do or what would you do? Mm-hmm. But. Um, which would you be? Yeah, of the fractured right? possibilities that do definitely exist, so, which yeah, one of those exactly. would you be? So there's yeah. the me that goes to the roadhouse to look for Billy, and then there's the me that doesn't. Yeah, which, which one should I tune should into I with be? my consciousness? Right, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And that's that's really just said so quickly that it's going to be lost on, I think, a lot of viewers mm-hmm. and myself at first. You know, it's this is the day after it's this episode has been aired and I've seen it four times already. Yeah. And it took me like the fourth time to really kind of get to that. Oh, wait a minute. That's what you're demonstrating is Mm -hmm. the the fork in the road Mm -hmm. right there where the character is going to say, you know, this way or that way. And then right after this, she says, 
Charlie, help me. It's like Ghostwood here. Right. And we're talking about Ghostwood, too. What is she referring to? Um, Mm -hmm. This could be a couple of things. Mm -hmm. um, But we do know the Ghostwood Estates project was what Ben Horn was going to develop, knocking down all the trees. Right. And which I think, at least, uh, is where Sylvia and Johnny are living. That makes sense. That was my read on that. I don't know. Other people might disagree. When we saw that a few episodes ago, I thought it's sort of like a subdevelopment or Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, that those cookie cutter homes or like model home strip or whatever is right. like that was the Ghostwood Estates that Ben Horn had built. That's what I thought. Yeah, that yeah. would make a lot of sense to me. It was the kind of architecture and kind of new suburban townscape that we never saw in Twin Peaks before. Right. And so it's very in, modern. In that case, if Audrey were referring to that, then she could be saying potentially this feels like being like in my mother's house. Yeah, back in or, my mother's or, house. Or something when, like when that. When Johnny was there and Sylvia, yeah. Um, that's a possibility. The other we were talking about just had to do with the woods around Twin Peaks because I believe there is at least an area called Ghostwood, right? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if we've gotten 100% on this, but uh, the Ghostwood Estates is the estates that are going to be built in Ghostwood area of the mm-hmm. forest. Um, and the idea also that when Audrey was going to protest at the bank to handcuff herself to the vault, at the bank, mm-hmm. she was protesting the development of Ghostwood. She and was, so if yeah. Ghostwood is in her mind, uh, metaphorically, yeah. the, uh, the sin that her family has committed, let's say, or the mar yeah. on her family, mm-hmm. then maybe that's what she's calling back to when she uses the phrase here. Yeah, and we were talking about secret history again here. It's another one of those inconsistencies, right? Why was she going to the bank, Yeah, right? In the show... It was, um, you know, to save the pine weasel, mm-hmm. right? And, like she was on the same side as Ben. Mm-hmm. But in the secret history, the that account sets it up as her already being at loggerheads with Ben when she goes yeah. to the bank. Yeah. One way or another, though, she goes to the bank to protest Ghostwood. Right. And I think it has also been established that Ben ultimately did do Ghostwood. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so there's yeah, a couple ways to take that, mm-hmm. but both of them would work mm-hmm. um, for... Audrey to be there saying, this is like Ghostwood and I don't like that feeling. Let me out of here. And then what follows this is the greatness of Sherilyn Finn's performance and in, mm-hmm. in her breaking down and crying. Yeah. There's crying and then there's wailing and stuff. And then there's the detail of having pursed lips while you're crying. You're trying to keep it inside. The whimpering that she does. There's something about that. I almost cried myself watching that. I was that really kind of broke my yeah, heart. Yeah, definitely watching Audrey cry me, there uh, pretty deeply. Yeah, as well. Before we move on, let's talk about this a little bit more, though. Yeah, <laughs> we talked about it a, a bit. Let's talk about it even more. Yeah, what the hell is going on? Yeah, um, you know, we mentioned at least briefly these theories out there that this is some kind of weird psychiatric treatment. The theory that she's still in a coma. I've heard that. I, I maybe still... she's actually dead and that this is kind of an in-between or the afterlife has been mentioned. I actually um, like that one the best because mm-hmm. none of these quite work for me. Right. So to run through really quick. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if she were still in a coma, then if she were still in a coma. Yeah. Right, why the real world. References. Then like all of these references wouldn't make any sense. Exactly. Right. Okay, what if it's psychiatric treatment? Well, well, first of all, it would have to be pretty radical. Pretty radical treatment. and weird and mean. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah Char- like, Charlie comes off as kind of an asshole a little bit too much. And he's stern, but there's there's moments where that, that actually do seem just sadistic. Yeah. And, and in that, he's not telling her what Tina said, but he doesn't explain why. He just stares at her in this silent, cold shoulder moment watching her freak out. Yeah. You know, so there's a couple moments like that that I do feel like... 
are a little bit sadistic, or like he's saying, oh, yeah, you look like you were going to go a second ago. Now you're looking like you're going to stay, yeah, aren't that you? Yeah, that just doesn't, you know? that just seems a little too mean. It does. Even for, um, you know, weird psychotherapy. Oh, I guess there was another theory we didn't mention that this is somehow, um, like, uh, invitation to love or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that would what, be like weird. stuck in a soap opera? What or, or that she actually is acting. Have you, you haven't seen that? Oh, theory? I see. Yeah, yeah, I have seen that. that yeah. This isn't real. That she actually this is, a is acting, and this or this is a rehearsal or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess maybe. What's weirding me out about it is okay. So particularly with this line about the story, yeah. am I going to have to end your story too? Yeah, I don't think we mentioned whose other story is he talking about here. Yeah, exactly. Um, although that opens the door for me to be more, you know, receptive to this type of thing. I, none of them seem to fly for me. Mm-hmm. Not really. Mm-hmm. Or none of them seem to fly better than this just being ordinary reality and being weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, except maybe this idea that she is dead and caught between worlds or something like that. Yeah. But even then, that. I feel like this is just jumping off a speculative ledge. Right. You know, I really don't know. Yeah. And we got a lot of information from that first go round where, you know, Charlie is saying that he's the husband and mm-hmm. why do you treat your husband that way. If we just take them their words at face value, right. then that means that they're married and they're sitting there in their home where they're comfortable and they don't want to go out at night because it's a little too late. And she's been fucking Billy and Billy is missing. Yeah. Like, okay. But if that's if that's somehow not true, right? Whatever weird theory we're going to get into, yeah. Well then what's going on with this whole conversation? Uh-huh. Right? I right. mean, why and the other thing is the contract that they yeah. spoke about, yeah. possibly breaking mm-hmm. the contract and then ending your story too. It also it does remind me also of um, Mulholland Drive when they're doing the audition. Mm-hmm. When you're like, okay, so these are characters in this movie that I'm watching, but right. they're being staffed for another movie that's a fictional movie inside a movie. Yeah, and there's that moment where they're auditioning, but it becomes they're so good at acting. That it becomes so real yeah. that it's disturbing. And even the other characters in the scene are kind of like thrown off yeah. because they've cut through right. this reality into a whole other reality mm-hmm. because their acting is so good. But anyway, the point being that there's kind of like this like story within a story within a story. Yeah. And when you mentioned that when Charlie mentions, you know, I could end your story, that's announcing to us, the viewers, like, okay, there's one story within a story. You know, so there's these multi-layered thing going on. Yeah. I don't know if we have yet received the key to understanding, like, what it means and how to break that down. I don't think that we have. Um, but I'm confident that it's going to be pretty interesting at the end of the day. Yeah, I think so. Like, I think it's going to be more complicated and more intriguing than something like she's still in a coma. Yeah. Yeah. And I was intrigued uh, last week when we first saw Audrey. I thought to myself, wow, this is really cool. Something, you know, Charlie, Mm -hmm. um, the actor playing him is just doing an amazing job. Something about his voice and his eyes. He's like so intense, but he's not monotonous, but he's like stern and he's like all foundationally the same the whole time. And Audrey's kind of all over the place. So the juxtaposition of them together is just really great. I could picture that being like a whole short film mm-hmm. and or even a whole film of Audrey's story, you know, something like that that would come off really successfully to me. Well, um, I was thinking about this a bit in the in the past week, too, um, uh, in terms of um, mysteries and different types of mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thinking back to that phone call, mm-hmm. I think this plays in other areas, right, where, um, you know, if the mystery is who killed Laura Palmer or if the mystery is... What's up with Bob? 
or whatever, right? Like we're all intrigued, right? Yeah. But if the mystery is this super banal, mundane thing of like, what did she say yeah. on the phone? Yeah. We're frustrated and annoyed because like we feel like we should be able to get that answer. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think potentially like one way to read some of this stuff is that, you know, potentially Lynch and Frost want us to actually enjoy this mystery too. Yeah. And I was thinking about candy and the traffic. Like, so we should try to be candy, like appreciating the sublimity of the mystery of traffic. Yeah. Right. As opposed to frustrated TV viewers who just want to like get to yeah. it already. Oh no, yeah. I totally agree with you. Be I like think- candy. I totally agree. I think this philosophy is kind of spelled out in Secret History also, Mm -hmm. where he's over and over again saying it's about the mystery. The mystery makes one curious. Once you are curious, you're questioning your own life. Suddenly you're discovering more about your own life. And you didn't even realize that that came from a stupid TV show or whatever. But the point being that it's it's not the answer to the mystery. It's the mystery itself. Right. That life, it's the ride. It's not the, the end game. It's not the goal, but playing the game. Right. Yeah. And what's the line from Lynch where he says something like uh, people accept that life doesn't make sense. Why do they expect art to? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Which, again, ties back to this thing that we've discussed a couple of times where I think that it's so weird because it's too close to home or something, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But seeing Audrey whimper like that and she pulls it off so well, my Mm -hmm. heart's still broken, man. Um, okay, so we go to that to what a moment I think of joy. We're both uh, admitting is our favorite moment at the Roadhouse. <laughs> uh, the best performance of the Roadhouse. The best performance ever. of the Roadhouse, and the announcers of the MC is of course proud to welcome James Hurley. James Hurley, we're ladies proud, and gentlemen. Yeah. And okay, a couple things. First of all, we've never seen a crowd this big at the Roadhouse. No, and they're and they're stoked. They're stoked. They're clapping. They're standing yeah. and smiling. And also, I don't think we've seen any interaction. With um, other performances before where we've seen the clapping and the hooting and hollering. Right. The only other time we got the MC uh, giving an introduction with, was with uh, the Nine Inch Nails. The Nine Inch Nails, right. correct. Um, so if, if James Hurley as a solo act with two background singers <laughs> is of the same caliber yeah. as Nine Inch Nails, so that well, means James is like a local hero or something, So right? let's start here at a kind of meta level of analysis because okay. he sings this song, Just You. Right, which is in the original series. Yes, this is him singing to Donna and Maddie after Laura is killed. Yeah, or they're singing together, right, because Donna and Maddie are the backup singers. Yes. They're recording this in the Hayward living room, I believe it is. Um, right, and because then, then there's later the whole thing where they want to give Maddie a copy of the tape. Anyway, this song, written by David Lynch and Angelo Badalamente, yeah. performed by James Mar- uh, James Marshall. James Marshall, yeah. Although there's some vocal manipulation going on here. Oh, right? it's definitely there's the old rever- heavy or... reverb. and Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's singing in that 50s style, like the um, mm-hmm. Bobby Darin, like a little bit higher. Kind of falsetto. Smooth. Yeah. Um, okay, so a lot of people hate this song yeah we talked about this earlier yeah right. but you and, and i both from the beginning i mean we both love it i've i've actually yeah. covered this song performing live <laughs> myself before yeah I, I love it and i but i love it i mean if you think back to that scene in the original series it is um a bit cheesy um sure it's kind of out of nowhere it seems kind of out of place just like all of a sudden you're going to cut to donna and james and maddie sitting there performing this song in the living room mm-hmm. like what the hell um and again, there is something cheesy about it. Um, I've always loved it in a way that is like right on the edge of almost being 
ironic about loving it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, I love this because it's so um, bad. Wait, actually, no. Do I? I love it because no, it's good. It's actually good, yeah. but it's so bad. I love it because it's yeah, you know. So, well, the thing um, the thing that always struck me about this song is it's it's got this built in contradiction in it. Right. That's he's saying. Just you and I, but he's singing to two ladies in yeah, the original. Right. And then now in this one, it's just you and I, but he's got two background singers, both young, yeah. attractive brunettes, sure as it was that, originally. The duality of the background singers, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then of course, saying just you and I to a whole room full of people, it's like, you know, there's a built-in contradiction there, but it's also of the era. Like, maybe mm-hmm. this seems cheesy to us standing here today, but this mm. was the coolest thing in 1956 that you could okay. find. That era. Because I was going to say, I'm pretty sure it was cheesy in 1991, too. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that's, yeah. We, we, I remember, I was, pretty, I was fairly young in 1991, but I, I remember well enough to know that was cheesy then. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know what I mean? This is like the, the right before Buddy Holly like showed everybody how to rock and roll or whatever you'd say. Yeah, you know. Um, and, you know, we, we get this kind of swooning, heavy reverb because the guitar and the microphone technology is taking big leaps before this. Yeah. And that's what the young teeny boppers were like fawning over was exactly that. In 91, right. mm, not so no, much. 91 yeah. was when we were, uh, you know, nirvanaing by then. Right, right? exactly, yeah. Um, but, you know, so... Um, at this sort of meta level, I do think that it, I mean, it kind of struck me as hilarious that they did this. Yeah. That they brought that song back, right? Knowing all of um, these people who uh, have such antipathy towards the song and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then staging it in this way where everyone's really excited. Everyone's clapping for James. Yeah, it's got right? more more support than any other musical act. James yeah. has always been cool. Yeah, exactly. Right? T- they're telling us, like, don't yeah. criticize my James. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This song right. is cool. James is cool. And you better shut the hell up. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> That's, and for an artist to do that, I mean, yeah, of course, it, this would be the second layer of something happening, but... Yeah. I can only admire the integrity of that. That mm. seems so cool to me. Mm. But all right, go, pulling back to the narrative, yeah. it is striking that uh, we do have this young woman, uh, Renee, Renee, in the booth, and yeah. we spend a lot of time focused on her during the song. Yeah. Right? So she's kind of, it seems like making connection with James. Maybe they're making eye contact together. Mm. I think you told me, I didn't recognize, but this is a young lady that was sitting in the booth with Shelly mm-hmm. when we first see James walk in. Yep. It stated, uh, oh, James is kind of checking you out. Yeah. And that's Renee who he's looking at then. It would seem. Yeah, that that mm-hmm. is precisely when we get that line from Shelly about James having then, always been cool. Here we are in right. the same booth, which is our notorious booth, the one booth that we shoot any mm-hmm. action in at the Roadhouse. And she's sitting there during this song. Um, she's kind of like flirtatiously smiling at first, but then kind of breaks into she tears. Breaks like there's a sad in moment. Tears, and um, I'm at least really wondering who she is. Of course, yeah. Right? But mean, there, it's also something weird is that you don't see it, but there's who, somebody in yeah. the booth with her. Who's she with? She's not alone. Yeah, it's totally cut off. You can see that she raises a glass and clinks her glass to somebody else, but mm-hmm. we don't see who that person is. And those, you know, those questions could be connected. Um, I don't know how to read this. I don't know whether to read it romantically. I right. mean, of course, that might be your first thought. Um, Renee would be significantly younger than James, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would put her in her 30s, mm-hmm. right? Whereas James at this point would be... Probably 50 or... Pushing 50. In the neighborhood, yeah. You know, not, not, you know, okay, you can have that kind of romance. So, I mean, it could be something like that, I suppose. Or maybe it's something else, mm-hmm. right? Um well, what's funny is that the the rest of the crowd that we see is all smiles and clapping and like, whoa, just you and me, I love this one. Mm-hmm. And she's like nostalgic about it. She's yeah. waxing and she's crying. You know, maybe there's that too. It's mm-hmm. like, 
this is a sad song. Yeah. Right. And she's the only um, one in there that gets that or something. And um, I think you were mentioning it going back to the original scene. I think Donna breaks down crying mm-hmm. maybe because like James and Maddie are kind of making eyes at each other or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might also think about, since we're talking about James, that scene where he and Donna um, in the roadhouse or in the booth, like right, they're kind of crying mm-hmm. to uh, Julie Cruz. To Julie Cruz scene, yeah. yeah. Um, well, there's definitely the music in the air at the roadhouse is kind of mm-hmm. magical. And it often sparks this kind of insight or a sentiment where the characters hearing the music are allowed a little bit more um, understanding of their own realities, maybe, yeah. let's say. Um, so Renee is also at this booth. She's crying. We see, it might be worth mentioning, there's a tattoo yeah, present. Yeah, we got the numbers on her arm, 7663. Seven, six, six, three. Uh, every, when, when I looked at that a little bit closer, I kind of came away thinking that was a date, that maybe yeah, I was seeing dashes, like July 6, 1963, mm-hmm. I sort of thought, although you can't really find anything online about a yeah, date. Yeah, we didn't really find anything trying to look up this number, either as a date or not a date, although I did see something about it being uh, the number on a um, pill for treating cancer. Hmm. Uh, I figure it's probably not that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would think that it's there for a reason because it would be so easy to cover it up with makeup. Yeah. If not, mm-hmm. if it was just like one of the actress's tattoos, we don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that you can read it. And the fact, again, we've talked about this before, that Frost and Lynch know that everybody <laughs> is perusing this. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we're looking at every second of it, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that uh, the other thing that um, is kind of like the contradictory and illusory, even dream logic nature of the Roadhouse scenes is every once in a while you see a band that you're not like you're hearing more than you're seeing. Oh, right. You were pointing out that there's no bassist or drummer. No bassist, no drummer. Yeah. And this this song is really heavily um, backed up and supported by the bass and drums. Mm-hmm. So it just made me wonder. Like, for example, when we saw The Nine Inch Nails, mm-hmm. there's like nine people on stage and every possible sound was represented. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is the first time we've seen that. There's one of the other acts before where I remember thinking like, oh, where's that keyboard that I'm hearing? With uh, Rebecca Del Rio, maybe? Or uh, I think uh, maybe it was. I'm not sure. I'm going to have to go back yeah. through these things. I yeah. think maybe it was because we saw Moby playing guitar and yeah. and maybe somebody else. But Well, and I might be thinking of her also because of the Mulholland Drive scene. Yeah, right? well, there's because that too. Where like, Banda yeah, they're, they're showing Silencio. you, hey, there's a secret illusion yeah. happening here. Mm-hmm. There's a deception happening the nature of performance is deception. This is all, mm-hmm. every performer is a magician, mm-hmm. you know, and then the magician longs to see, you know, yeah. one chance out between two worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know, there's something in the performances at the Roadhouse that really, I, I always think about that, the deception, the deceptive nature of You know, of it's performing. great to me how much I have, um, I mean, I guess this one was a little different than some of the other performances, but I have weirdly started really looking forward to performances at the Roadhouse. Yeah. So yeah. when we've had an episode where there hasn't been one, I'm like, oh. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, at least there's some piano music. And this right, one, right. it was one of those moments, too, where we both jumped out of our chairs and we're like, holy <laughs> crap, we're going to see it's James. Like they Lewis. actually did it. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's one of those things being on message boards and things like this. Yeah. Again, in, in line with people... Um, hating the song people also like to joke about the song right so there were all these people like last week joking that uh let's rock was going to mean it was just james playing that song all episode or whatever and i think nope they did it they did it to you enjoy it yeah (laughs) i I thought it was great but uh if you look at the lyrics of just you and i there Mm. are a couple times in the in the show that we've seen them visually represented so just you and I together forever in love, in love, in we love. We go strolling. We for, go strolling. Strolling together. Together. 
And so that, that reminds me of a couple of things. It does remind me of the 1950s, the young couple mm-hmm. we saw in black and white falling mm-hmm. in love, the first love possibly. Um, and of course, this uh, ideal of love that you yeah. want it to be. The song is about that's how it should be. That's how I want it to be. It's the song exists because that's never how it is. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's always uh, some complication in there that can't be just us together forever. Yeah, it's never yeah. going to be just you and I, right? We're yeah. never going to stop the world and melt together or whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, like, right. It, it's like, no, the world is going to be there. It's going to get in the way and things are going to be messy and you're going to end up like Big Ed eating your soup alone. Which brings us from the roadhouse yeah. to Big Ed's gas station. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I don't think we did mention this before, but I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, that in the double R scene, Big Ed says to Bobby, "No one should eat alone." Yeah, right. No, no, join us, Bobby. No one should. Yeah, eat Yeah, sit your butt down, Bobby. Which is this is really nice and charming and Big Ed. We love Big Ed. But then we end the episode with Big Ed eating alone. Eating alone, motherfucker. Yeah, that's it's really depressing. <laughs> and like, so we've just seen that Big Ed never got Norma. Mm-hmm. We don't know if he still is with Nadine, but yeah. if he is, we know it is still like a tortured kind of thing going on. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's a couple really weird things about the way that they end this. So first yeah. of all, we picture that there's something going to happen. And I think half people that saw this would be like, oh, nothing happened in that scene at all. And the mm. other half would be like, no, a tremendous <laughs> yeah. amount happened in that scene. <laughs> you know? eating, I, again, I think it was soup. Again, I don't think it was cream corn. Mike. It's, it's it, yellowish. It was I, yellowish. Want, <laughs> I want to think everything it's, it's is cream corn. Look it out for the garment post. Yeah. yeah. Get it. We should do that. But, um, but, but yeah, it is kind of soupy looking. And it's, uh, it, it's more of like a cup of noodles kind of soup. It's yellowish. And yeah. Whatever. But it's from the double R. And he also has a cup of coffee from the double R. And I noticed that, though, despite that, in the background, there's also a full pot of coffee. Right. And the light's on. Right. right. So uh, part of what I thought about there was like, oh, man, like he'll go to the double R basically just to see Norma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. pretend he want, needs a, a coffee or oh something. well you know yeah. the handoff there and the changing the guards or whatever you'd say is mm-hmm. that's exactly why Bobby showed up looking right. for Shelly yeah Bobby showed up and he's like oh no Shelly left early he's like oh okay well, you know? so eat my spaghetti yeah it, yeah it's really <laughs> sad like these guys are in love you know yeah and, um, anyway so a couple things in the scene so yeah we see he's just kind of staring into nothing. Something that um, the fans mentioned the next day was all over the internet is that there was a weird glitch in the reflection mm-hmm. in in the glass there. Um, he's looking out the window. We see cars pass. The first thing that hit me was like, oh, wow, the arrangement of the gas pumps themselves. This does look like the convenience store that we've seen. Right. And at first I was wondering, you know, what is uh, he looking at? And then... Um you know, you pointed out to me this reflection thing. It's, it's hard to see, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you may be kind of, well, I don't know if you have to be looking for it, but you have to be watching really close. And um, it's a bit dark. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, what you pointed out to me with these um, reflections is basically that his reflection moves differently than his actual body. Is that how we want to put this? Yeah, I feel like it's an overlay mm-hmm. in editing. They put an overlay over the window to make it seem like there's a reflection there when the camera couldn't capture it. But the overlay itself has like a jump cut in it where it's like this staggered yeah. moment where the soup it's is like, up and then boom, the soup is down. Like, yeah, his reflection will be holding the soup in its hand and he won't be. And well, but it's an over the shoulder turn. shot. You can see yeah, this yeah. top mm-hmm. of the soup. So you can still see that maybe he is holding the soup. But nevertheless, when it drops down, the soup doesn't move down. He mm-hmm. doesn't move at all. And it's an obvious, like, jump cut. It's not mm-hmm. like just something that happens fast. It's like, yeah. oh, totally different all of a sudden. Well, so then I started thinking... Is that what he's looking at? Is it exactly. actually? You know, is it Big Ed looking at his own reflection 
and seeing this difference between himself and his reflection and then how are we going to read that right and is he reasoning his way through this or uh, attempting to test his some hypothesis we also see Mm -hmm. credits will roll at this point yeah um but as the credits are rolling we see there's a little folded up piece of paper next to ed yeah which he takes a match and lights on fire and i'm wondering you know so what was that yeah was this some information he's destroying was i thought to myself you know i always try to think like what are the what are all the ways we can analyze this Mm -hmm. um in some sense, you know, you get that moment where you're just bored and playing around and you're just messing with stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but at the same it's time, that. it's it's fire, which we know is a significant mm-hmm. symbol in this thing. Um, and it's fire burning paper made of wood. Yeah. You know, so you can picture the smell of it. And it does remind us of the mill burning down, the several important characters, Mr. Briggs, um, yeah. and others that have died right, in there's fires. there's a fire at Briggs' station. Yeah. Of course, Briggs didn't die, we know mm-hmm. now, but... Oh, there was a fire but there. He was assumed apparently. to be killed in the fire. He was assumed to be killed in the fire. Um, and then, um, of course, we know Margaret Lanterman's husband did die in a fire. Yeah. And it was then represented as wood, yeah. you know. And fire so, walk with me. So we know there's um, that. That could be symbologically stuck to the motif of fire and wood throughout sure. Twin Peaks. Uh, but I'm still wondering what the piece of paper is. Yeah. Because I have this feeling like, um, you know, we're not told um, that in itself is worth noting. I think, yeah. you know. Again, to give us that kind of like little mystery about, you know, what is on this piece of paper. Oh, right. And the fact that it's an action that happens after the credits. Like, oh, it shows over. That's all of the story. Like, wait a minute. But why that? Right. So, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever get an answer. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, um, one thought would be maybe it has something to do with um, the fact that Bobby mentioned this thing about finding something from Major Briggs. Correct, yeah. Mm, I don't know. That could be. If it is, we might find out about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I was thinking, though, is just uh, kind of sadly, like, maybe this was, you know, some little note he was going to pass to Norma. And now he witnessed the events this evening between Norma and Walter and now he's burning it, just yeah. like giving up on that old flame. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And just the, the idea of uh, a, an old flame itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Um, a couple of things about this scene that uh, kind of threw me off is I kept seeing, like, there's these recurring loop scenes. Okay, right. We see Sonny yeah. Jim running mm-hmm. around the jungle gym. Um, we see uh, Sarah Palmer watching this boxing match. Mm-hmm. Um, with Big Ed, he's kind of staring out his window, and we see, keep seeing these cars pass. Yeah. And I kind of felt like that maybe Ed himself was stuck in a loop also. Mm. And that maybe the fire was some sort of way of trying to get out of that loop. Like, cause he's like, sip my soup, oh. look out the window, sip my soup, yeah. look out the window. And you just reminded me, mm-hmm. didn't they used to live right across the street from Big Ed's gas farm, Ed and Nadine? Oh, um, I don't remember that so much. That very well mm. could be. Yeah, I might need to check on that because it yeah. didn't seem like they did here. Well, um, the other thing that caught my eye... Like given that he's looking in that direction... Right. Um, that would also be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But just the fact that it's night and you see the car lights passing and it's mm-hmm. kind of... It just felt like a loop, you know. Um, the other thing that caught my eye is in the establishing shot of Big Ed's gas station, which I'm thinking when I first see it, like, whoa, that looks like the convenience store. There's two gas pumps right there. Yeah. And then the store is right behind it with its yeah. main door right in between. The other thing I noticed is that there is like a smoke yeah, stack. Smoke. Yeah, what's going on with like that? Like blowing huge amounts of smoke or steam up into the air. And I agree that that is weird unless there is something we do not understand about Big Ed's gas farm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is the secret of the meth factory or something? Well, I mean, is I guess. Is this where they're making the Chinese designer drugs? Or, or I, I, I suppose it could just be like a chimney. Like maybe it's cold and 
you know that's yeah, what you would think, fire. but first, it, but it's a lot of smoke. It's it a, lot, a lot. It, of it reminds me of the mill, the shot of the mill, of the where mill all the smoke like is coming that. out, yeah. and that's you see that in like industrial exhaust of a place. Yeah, it is um, more like that. And right. then we've seen uh, smoke and exhaust coming from other places. F- from uh, in the lodge, we see it coming from Dougie's like shirt collar once his mm. head is disappeared. You mm-hmm. know. Um, so a couple of things, and then um, the idea of like uh, black fire was introduced not that long ago. So now yeah. anytime there's a situation with fire, I'm kind of looking a little bit closer. Anyway, just something that caught my eye that I can't explain Yeah, is this huge amounts of smoke coming out of Ed's. And it's late at night. It's a gas station. Yeah. Um, and Ed is kind of sitting there alone and lonely. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have Norma. He's possibly still caught in this um, uh, marriage, uh, this kind of tragic marriage to Nadine. Yeah. He's sitting in a gas station, which is got these huge tanks underground of a flammable liquid, and he's playing with fire. Yep. That's the other thing is that mm-hmm. he's it's there's combustion all around him. Sure. And he's yeah. lighting this little fire. So I don't know if that yeah. could be some sort of foreshadowing or something, but uh just a couple things about that caught my eye. There's also the bear that says bear with oh, me I on love his the desk. Bear. Really it reminded funny. me of uh Harry Truman's um The Buck Stopped Here. Yep. Exactly. Uh, it it also reminds me of Ben Horn's totem. Mm-hmm. Ben Horn's totem or um, his name sign on his desk is also <laughs> hand carved out of wood. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is an ongoing motif of like destroying the trees to make wood or something, yeah. you know? Um, so just something I just thought that'd be worth noticing. And uh, the last thing in the scene is just back to that reflection is, uh, I think was an ongoing motif in this episode. There's one moment where we're looking at Charlie and we see Audrey Horn in the reflection of the mirror behind Charlie. Yeah. Um, when she's kind of uh, pleading with, with Charlie we see it here with Big Ed kind of seeing his own reflection, possibly. Uh, we see it in the scene with Jacoby and Nadine when they're out in front of the curtains and the golden shovel. Yeah. There's the reflection of them. Um, and the reflection itself changes when the curtain comes open versus being all the way closed mm-hmm. because it creates that dark background for the glass. Um, and then there's the reflection in Sarah Palmer's house. If you look in her mirror behind her, it kind of lines up perfectly with the portrait of her daughter, Laura Palmer, that's sitting on that family yeah. portrait table. Mm-hmm. So there's, and there's probably more in there that I'm missing, but several times there's like this reflection thing going on. And of course, the reflection being a, a really good symbol and analogy for this kind of duality, uh, the mirror world, the dream world, and other side represented. And I thought that it was just rife in this episode. Yeah. Goodbye.